Welcome back to March Mad Men. This is the culmination of our in-depth examination of Mike Flanagan's 2013 film Oculus. Does it deserve the mantle of greatest haunted house movie ever made? Well, we shall see. It's been two weeks, full disclosure here, since our our last recording, um, and none of the three of us got to go back and watch the movie again, but we are still filled with love for this film, I'm sure, and I'm eager to get down deep into its its organs, into its innards. Um, I was going to say its bowels, but I'm not sure I'm that passionate about it. (laughs) Vic, how you doing tonight, man? I'm doing good, John. I, I think it's worth noting that we are also watching the movie simultaneously uh, in in live time as we're going through it. So even though we didn't get to go back and watch it again, uh, we really are going to have the, the details right up in front of us. So I think hopefully everyone will will be able to, to watch along with us and, and, and understand what's going on. I don't know if I recommend you watching it along with us just because uh, we hit pause a lot. But whatever you are, whatever you're doing while you listen, yeah, I hope you, you have watched the movie fairly recently or plan to again. Uh, Rich, how you doing tonight, bud? I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling confident. I think my uh, my thoughts on the movie have only aged and, and improved with, with time. They've, they've fermented into a warm, brothy stew <laughs> of intellectual discourse. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to pouring you a cup and uh, you can tilt back and enjoy that. Well, if there's one thing that uh, I know Rich knows, it's stew uh, and also wine because he often drinks white wine during the show. So either way, uh, you have my full confidence, Rich. <laughs> okay. So uh, we left it off at a point where the big presentation is happening, where Kaylee Karen Gillan, our star, is talking about these various crazy suicides and deaths uh, associated with the Lasser glass, the mirror that uh, directly or indirectly was responsible for their parents' death. And by their, I mean hers and her loyal brother Timbo's parents are deceased, but they're reunited to defeat this mirror and hopefully prove uh, vindicate their father's legacy that he was not a psycho killer. It was the mirror. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hit play here where she's talking about this woman that used a hammer to smash herself to pieces everywhere except the arm wielding the hammer because she needed it to wield the hammer. <laughs> yes. And she she later said she believed that she was tucking her kids into bed when, in fact, she was sealing them into the cistern. And one of the things that I had been kind of questioning throughout this whole process was you don't get a lot of, like, the Delbert Grady killing his his family type of scenarios with this mirror up until now. Like, this family, the main family, uh, Tim and Kaylee's family, is the, the most sort of classically patricide, matricide, whatever you call it when you attempt to kill your kids. I'm not sure what that would be, but in any event, like familial slaughter. But uh, this case that she's talking about uh, appears to involve that, where um, a woman killed her kids before killing herself. And we paused it on a very flattering image of Kaylee, and I will go ahead and hit pause to get it playing again. 
she's talking about there were dogs um, on the premises, and we see the old family dog trot by in the background of adult Timbo. So she's seeing their family dog in the same house, the dog who, of course, had died 10 years earlier. And I believe that's going to be perhaps a window into the past. Let's see. No, it's just a reverie. It's definitely like it's a it's a nice little again the, the, like this thing keeps chipping away at at like putting you deeper and deeper like where the the line has been blurred between past and present and and you know like fantasy and, and reality. Um, it's a really nice moment, especially just the way that it lulls. Like it really hangs there, and she kind of after all of this time of her kind of like chattering like on and on and on with this like really rapid fire monologue. Like this is the first time that she pauses and like she gives into it, and it kind of it gives it a certain power. But, like you you understand that she's not completely powerless from its its draw. Yeah, it derails her right, and then the timer goes off, and you know they have to have a snack break, so she she just goes with it. But clearly, she's a little little shaken, as you pointed out there, to have this intrusion of the past. Um, and, and yeah, you kind of believe that she actually sees it and, uh, that, because that's the way this thing works. We're going to start to see that they are going to have these glimpses into their own past within this house throughout the film. And the, the lines get so blurry that even their past selves seem to see them. So there's like a weird temporal overlap going on perhaps. Well, that's, I mean, two things. This is, I feel like one of the first times that we get the past really intruding on the present, we're not really going to get that again for a little while. The other thing I would point out is that her monologue is so long that they have to stop in the middle to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is really pretty impressive. And, and again, just to, to reiterate, we've talked about what an impressive scene this is. That's how long it is, that it's sort of believable that they have to stop and have a snack, and then she gets up and goes back into it. And it's still a riveting scene. And it helps the pacing, I think, as well to not just, yeah. you know, have this 20 minute PowerPoint uninterrupted that she essentially gives her brother. And a little little moment during their break, she actually slaps him in the face when he basically says our, our dad was a, a murderer. And that's like not her narrative on what happened. And she thought that they we're in agreement on that, but you know, of course he's reconstructed the past in his mind and he has all of these theories that are non supernatural. And of course they, they revolve around the fact that what really happened is that their dad went crazy and she can't handle that. Cause you know, what's keeping her going is the belief that he was a good man and that the mirror is to blame and she'll prove it. And that's motivating her. Tim also has kind of a slappable face. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Haley's really just the audience at this point. <laughs> you know, I don't really find him annoying. I mean, he's so deadly earnest. He doesn't have anything. He's not smarmy or arrogant or, you know, he's puppy dog-like. So she gets back to the presentation after telling him, don't shit talk our dad. She busts out this picture of a guy who's starved to death in his own bedroom. And I think, yeah, this is where we, we begin to get the idea of the MO here. Like so many of, well, the MO is all over the place, but so many of these people do 
die of deprivation of food or water. Well, and you can see that her preparations stem from the causes of death, uh, from mm-hmm. what the mirror has done in the past. We're going to make sure that we have water. We're going to make sure that we have food. We know that the electricity is going to go out. It's not just based on her experience as a child. It really does come from the research that she's done, which is what makes her so so confident going into this. Yeah, she has connected the dots to put together the MO that this that, that she believes the thing is going to use with them. And, of course, she's only half right, and that's why, spoiler, it doesn't all work out for them. I love that she's back in the monologue. Uh, she's held up the picture of the woman who chewed through the, the wire. That's my, maybe my favorite, like, gore effect of, of this. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of, uh, Katie Sackhoff's uh, mouth later on. Yeah, I agree. That one really jumps out at you. Most of these crime scene photos are pretty muted in their impact, but that one hits you, hits you big. Now, she's talking right now about this woman who died in the, in 1965, and I don't think we get a name here, but Mar- okay, no, Marisol Chavez. Okay, so yeah, this is this is Ghost Lover. This is the chick that shows up and romances their dad. And I didn't really get that she had this. Apparently, she dies of uh, 1975. Actually, she dies in her bedroom of hemorrhaging due to a miscarriage. And you get glimpses of this like bloody stain in her dress uh, later on. But like this photo of her that we're seeing here, totally unrecognizable, right? From any incarnation of her that we see in the actual movie. Am I crazy? No, it, I mean, it took me three viewings to connect that it was the same, that that's who we're seeing as, like, the, the ghost woman. Although we do confirm here, I, I just went through our, our most recent podcast on this movie. There was some discussion about the the teeth seems to be one of the other running themes, whether it's just a theme through uh, a theme of the the mirrors or something maybe that Flanagan brings to the table, but that one of the indelible images of this is uh, Katie Sackhoff after she's she's eaten a a, a bowl or a vase or whatever it is that she's gnawing on, and her teeth are just mangled and destroyed. Marisol also removes all of her teeth with a pair of pliers uh, and leaves them in a drawer next to her body before she dies. So there's there is kind of a theme there. That was that was something that we sort of discussed and weren't weren't quite clear. Uh, on whether that that was Marisol's uh, cause of death or you know part of part of her death uh, or not, so something else that, I'm not really aware of, like oh yeah, the ghost with the uh, no teeth, right? Like I'm not really, I can't swear to it, but I don't associate the ghost version of her as like having this toothless mouth. But I, well, I guess we'll, we'll see. No, and, it, and I don't think she does, and that was, that's something that is a bit confusing. Like her ghost, the ghost vision of her does not seem to be devoid of teeth or anything like that it's part of the, I mean, it's interesting this is such a great scene and there's such a deluge of information and when you've seen it many 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 times and really gone into it in depth the way we have you really start to parse out oh that's who this ghost is or that's you know there's a there's a an overlap between this person with the teeth and that person with the teeth or there's a little bit of infanticide here and we're going to see that come up here but it's not it, it doesn't translate i think in the way that The Shining does, where we really have just a very few stories to keep track of and then get these very obvious overlaps. 
I think that Flanagan gives you a deluge of information that's all really horrifying, and then he's just free to pick and choose from it as the story moves forward to find the most horrifying things. And he trusts us to keep up with it. But do we? I mean, I don't think we do keep up with it for the most part, is what we're agreeing, right? I mean, I know there's like really obvious telegraphing of, oh, that's that character in other movies, not necessarily The Shining, but I, I, I read you on that. But in this movie, it's really like, I, it's very hard for a lot of this not to go over your own head, uh, over your head. Rich, what were you saying? Well, I think that you know, like Vic was sort of drawing it together as a, as a positive, not, not that I, you know, I think that it gets deployed well throughout the movie, but also what you're describing is he's basically set up the, the steak and ale buffet of, of horror shocks so that then he can just sort of like pick and choose like the things that he wants off of it later. You know, it's, it's, it's functional. I don't know if it's good for you. Well, I mean, dying of vaginal bleeding doesn't exactly fit the mirror's MO as far as I know, but yeah, it's, it's another part of the, the puzzle and removing your own teeth, I guess. It's certainly creepy and biting into a power line thinking that it's a hoagie, definitely an issue. I mean, I don't know exactly what she thought she was biting. I would presume it was a sandwich or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And then uh, Tim goes into a pretty persuasive rant here about causation, correlation and causation. And, you know, well, in 2001, we bought this couch and grandpa had a heart attack and Robbie Schultz got hit by a car. And I guess it was the couch, right? And, you know, all of these and the cat ran away. All of these arguments are logical. And I think one of the fun things with the movie, which is extremely hard to pull off, but I think as we'll see in about 20 minutes or so, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I think the movie really does somewhat succeed in making the audience wonder, even having seen what we've seen up to this point, maybe it all is in their head. And I think that's quite an accomplishment considering we know what movie we're, we're seeing. But the guy's logic is so good in some places. I, I think there, there's going to be a moment where I really believe Flanagan is hoping we're going to wonder, because I know Kaylee is wondering, maybe this is all in her head. I also really want to know what happened to the couch. I know. That couch is the missing piece of the Lasser Glass mystery. It's, it's in an auction house somewhere, and someone's going to buy this ready old couch. For much less than $16,000, I'm going to pause it. <laughs> so in 2002, the Lasser Glass adorns the home office of Alan Russell. And of course, that's dad to our characters. And he has a nice 1992-ish, well, I guess that would be 2002 headshot. And mom, whose name is Marie. And within two weeks of the mirror coming into the parents' home, Marie suffers an intense psychological breakdown. We have a, a disturbing crime scene photo of her corpse here. And she was tortured and murdered within her own home by her husband, Tim says, but Kaylee thinks otherwise. So what do you guys think of the fact that the mirror moves in on Monday, let's say, and two Mondays later, the parents are dead. That it moves pretty quick, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, wait. Is, are these like two calendar weeks, or does like does it take the weekend off? Is this like a Monday through Friday kind of deal? <laughs> Bankers hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I, MLK uh, Day was in this weekend, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the mirror respects private time and that people deserve a personal life outside of work. So I'm going to say it moved in on a Monday, and it it was it killed them on a Friday, um, the week following. <laughs> 
still, I mean, um, that's a quick turnaround. I mean, I love this little bit where they really like they've they've set up a they they just gave you like the timeline and the outcome. And uh, yeah, they also you know make clear that Tim shot Dad in front of Kaylee, and that was the the end of the first story that we're going to see overlap with this story. And here we go. After that, now Kaylee launches and she's directly addressing the camera. And we're going to get the depth and power of her motivation here. The personal nature of this quest and her loyalty to her father, that she is going to prove that none of the people she's described, including her parents, were responsible for their actions. Alan Russell was not a murderer. He was a victim. And I get that. It's a, it's a heroic quest and also, you know, one of family pride and loyalty. And, but then he comes out to him and says, well, all right, let's just smash the goddamn mirror, right? And I think her response to this is, you don't remember, do you? Well, it's, I, I just want to point out too, it's, I mean, yes, it's, it's pride and yes, she wants to redeem her father. But I think we, we, we don't want to gloss over, especially in Kaylee, how much of this is revenge. You know, I mean, the first thing she says to that mirror in that in, in the room is, I hope this hurts you every day. She hates this mirror. She wants to expose it and then she wants to destroy it. And I think that she's on some level, she's talked herself into this this sort of more noble idea of why she's doing this, probably because she she wants to or needs to involve Tim. Um, but I think part of her undoing is that her driving motivation is not altruistic. This is not about clearing her father. This is about her wanting to hurt and destroy this thing. Interesting. I, I have a little trouble with the distinction because it's not like to just use a really crude and you know blunt analogy. It's not like the mirror raped her. I mean, like it's all about what it did to the other people in her family. How can it not be? altruistic in a, in a, I mean, in a sense it's, it's, yeah, it's personal, but it's personal because yeah, she wants revenge for what it did to those people. So it's all about those people, right? I'm saying Yoda would not approve of this course of action. Cause it comes from anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Does it, I, again, there, both things can be true. But I do think that there is a, there is a part of her – we've even talked about this a little bit. But there's, there's kind of an Ahab and, and uh, Moby Dick thing going on with her in the mirror. Rich, do you think that this dooms her in some way, her quest, that she's too, I don't know, angry or Ahab-ish? Well, sure. I mean like the, the place I go to is, uh, is like her downfall is arrogance. Like the, the very fact that she feels that she that she can expose the mirror, that she's not taking the easy kill, but she feels like she can, is capable of outsmarting it, you know, and not just out out fighting it. As opposed to like, hey, I'm just gonna put this uh, set this anchor trap up and go bowling and come back in an hour, and the mirror will be destroyed, and nobody will have been able to save it. And that would have been like the real solution to this, perhaps. Sure, you know, like 
pulling the the truck on the off on the side of the the PCH on the way home and throwing it off the off the side of a cliff. Like she could have done any number of things. I mean, like well, it, it's it's totally been in her care since the auction house. Like she has plenty of potential to destroy this thing if that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, but again, keeping in mind that you can't, like, she cannot physically pick up something and 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 hit it, right? Because we know she can't. Like, the only way to actually destroy it is to not have your own personal agency involved. Well, I think that's that is one of the rules. Well, and I think it's one of the defining characteristics of the mirror, which is really what we're getting right this second in this scene. As Tim says, "Well, let's just destroy it." The mirror will defend itself, and I think that that's that's such a cool little thing. And the ways that the mirror defends itself are so psychological. It, it you know, it's not. It, it doesn't blast you out of the way. You just can't kind of do it, right? Like here it is. Go for it. Tim's looking at it, looking at his reflection in it. But he's going to talk himself out of it. Uh, and it goes back to the the flashback. We don't get the reveal of what the flashback was really showing when they were kids and tried to destroy it. But yeah, it's not it's not as easy a thing, I think, Rich, as just throwing it off the throwing it off the cliff. I have a I have a strong feeling if she had decided to do that, she would have wound up at the bottom of the cliff, and the mirror would have still been in the truck. Okay, well that that's fair. I mean, look, I could, I could come up with the Roadrunner scenario that's the equivalent of like the boat anchor that she could have done more quickly. Like she she could have figured out a boat anchor esque scenario, I think, at the auction house without even bringing it to this house. Well, if it allowed her to set up the boat anchor, then does that mean she could have put the car on PCH, put the brick on the gas pedal, stepped away, let the car go off the cliff? Would that have worked? I don't know. I mean, it's up for debate. I mean, there's an argument to be made that the reason why it let her set the boat anchor up in the first place is because the boat anchor wasn't actually a threat to it. I completely agree with you, Rich. I think you nailed it, actually. Yeah, is that he wouldn't, would not have allowed that if it could work. And I think we're going to start, like, looking at, at the actual device here in the next few seconds. And I actually want to want to talk about this. And I think her expectation of what's going to happen and what actually happens um, there's a big difference. But first, she's talking about like the last guy that tried to damage the mirror uh, in, I guess it was 1971, and he had a fireplace poker, but for whatever reason, he never struck a blow. Instead, he walked out into traffic and was horribly killed by a car. Very distinctive mustache on that man that we're going to see again later. Oh, that's that guy. Good call, yeah. Vic. I wondered who that was. I think you're right, dude. Also, uh, Tim suggests that she's going to lose her job because of this and be charged with destruction of property. Uh, We talked about this last time, but I I do think that her whole best case scenario here is hanging on a real thread. Like it, either she proves all of this stuff or she's losing her job or dead. Like there's not a lot of in between outcomes it's true, but it's also – I think this is a brilliant screenwriting moment in that Tim's explanation for why he's not breaking the mirror makes good sense. Mm-hmm. And so she sort of brings up, you know, hey, look, but you're not – you're not, still not smashing the mirror. And so it's – is this actually Tim being concerned for his, his sister's job or is this – 
the mirror defending itself and, and impacting Tim's psychology. It's they were still in this gray area where we're not, especially on an initial viewing where you're not really sure what's going on. Is Kaylee crazy? Is, is, is the mirror really supernatural? This scene plays right into that really well. Well, even like however many viewings we're on, it's still all the more interesting in the sense that now we're really debating what you said is, is that is Tim's logic the same person or is it, is he, completely being already manipulated and deceived by the mirror here um, and just making excuses for why he's under its thrall. Would you, I don't think you'd be thinking that at all the first time. I think you would be thinking he's just, you know, bringing the outsider's perspective. And I think there's a little bit of truth to, to either reading, but that's, that's one of the interesting things about the film. I disagree. I think there's that scene of him looking into the mirror when he pulls the, the sheet off while he's holding it. I the more I watch this, the more I think that the the mirror really is manipulating everything, essentially from the word go. Yeah, but I mean, the, he's read all this, all of this knowledge. He's dropping some real science on us as far as like psychological theory. Like I think all of his experience in the institution, it's not just you know to be manipulated by the mirror. I think he's built up all of these self defense mechanisms, and I think mm-hmm. that's what's also coming out here, right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's given us a lot of evidence that it, it is into that level of psychological manipulation. Like it's, it's power is to control what you are, what you're seeing, um, you know, and manipulate your emotions that way. It's not manipulating your emotions and your, and your thoughts directly. At least I don't think we have the evidence of that. There's a evidence of mind reading coming up here, I think. Um, and we'll see, but I mean, I, I think that it definitely knows how to cut to the quick of somebody that would suggest that it's, it's in your head to at least a degree. Let's put a pin in that map for now. Kaylee's talking about the, the rig that she has here, this yacht anchor. And first off, I want to say it's a brilliant concept to say, Hey mirror, if we don't consciously decide to spare you, you're fucked. I think that she's really smart and it's a very cool thing for a heroine to put together. However, I think, I think that she expects the yacht anchor to completely smash the mirror because it's got these uh, barbells, 20 pounds of weights attached to a modified ballast rail, whatever the fuck that is. This is like something that someone read in, in the anarchist cookbook or something. Right. (laughs) 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 All right, so we get to see a demonstration of this thing, and it definitely does put a lot of impact on the blade slicing into the wall. Pretty impressive. We go right from that to the past, and dear old dad, Mr. Russell, uh, working at his computer. Nice little overhead shot, kind of dynamic, where it wouldn't need to be. But it's to bring us into his fingers. Yep. And he's got a Band-Aid on his finger. And it's kind of annoying him. And I think the little cuts to like the close-up of his eyes are just, again, sort of the idea of the eye of the beholder being so important. Well, and also just worth pointing out, too, that at this point we're still, we're still mostly dealing with just hard cuts between the present and the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are going to get more twisted and, and less clear as we go forward. The, the, the filmmaking really ties into the thematic ideas. It's uh, really, I think, one of the strongest elements of this movie. 
Now, pacing, structure, thematic ideas, all of it is sort of linked with the, how, the, how the editing works, right? Also, I, I, we've talked about it numerous times, and this scene still, we're just we're staring at the Band-Aid that he's pulled off and, and rested on the mouse pad. And I'm still like, I'm, I'm preemptively cringing at what's about to happen. Yeah, it's very cringy. This is a difficult scene. And if we had the sound going, once he starts digging in there... The sound you hear is what's really happening. Well, and one of the things that that this movie does that I think – oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm watching so – Let's let the listeners know what we're watching here. I'm watching – we're watching him dig the, the staple remover into what for the moment appears to be a Band-Aid, but is not actually a Band-Aid and is actually the fingernail on his pointer finger, and he's going to rip it off with a staple remover. Yeah, he thinks he's pulling this uh, Band-Aid that's stuck to his fingertip off, but no, it's what's stuck to his fingertip is the nail bed. And uh, it comes off. And the sound effects, as I was saying, are of him peeling the nail off. So you kind of know, even the first time, you know this is horrible. Oh, and then you get the actual shot. It shows Uh. what he did. Now, this is one of the things, the games that the movie plays. Sometimes you see these things, like later with the biting of the light bulb, and it turns out it didn't really happen. And sometimes you see something, and no, guess what? It it actually did. And I think you get enough in both columns to never really be able to trust what you're seeing, even as a viewer. Well, and one of this movie's strengths, I really think, is especially in the haunted house genre, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say soft horror, but it's, these don't tend to be the goriest of films. And it, right. it, you don't get a lot of this, that visceral physical reaction to violence. A lot of it is very spooky and, and suspenseful and jump scares and that kind of thing. This is one of the only movies I think in the tournament that really combines those visceral gross, again, teeth being ripped out and people eating light bulbs and, and vases and bowls and all kinds of crazy shit. Um, along with these very effective visual supernatural scares. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a movie, I think like terrified to some degree that, that transcends a lot of the normal limitations that we associate with haunted house movies and the, bag of tricks that they have to traumatize us with. And that's why I love it. Cause yeah, I'm not a traditionally a haunted house movie fan. I, I like different types of horror more. And so these movies are getting me where I live regardless of their subgenre. So that's, that's part of why at least they got my vote all the way to this point. So in this scene, we also get this whispering of soft voices telling him that it doesn't hurt. And I I think here the mirror is normalizing the trauma. It can make you unaware of the pain that you should be feeling given what you're actually doing to yourself. This is a very much a textbook case of watching the rules in action that would apply to the woman biting the power line or the woman hammering herself or, uh, you know, the, the man not eating, you know, and not feeling that the, the need or the pain or the wasting away. And I think in many ways, this thing is like a a spider with a paralyzing bite. It it anesthetizes dad here. You're not aware of the harm being done to your body because it numbs your your senses. 
that's a little bit the reverse of, of what we're typically getting with, with haunted houses. Like a lot of times, like the scares you get with haunted houses are more like, um, you mentioned the, the light bulb scare we'll get later where it's, it's more that the, it's tricking you and, and frightening you with illusions and that that ends up driving you mad. In this case, like the, the illusion is to shield you from the damage it's dealing. Well, and it's also in these people, what it's going to do is, is shield them, anesthetize them to the emotional pain of neglecting your children or shooting your wife or, you know, a lot of the sort of terrible things that are, that are going to start happening. Yeah. I just use bourbon for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, uh, it just sort of plays these parents in, in such a way that they get so caught up in their own fantasy worlds, both, nightmares and i guess in his case he gets a little sugar too as we'll see yeah it just uses all of these different levers to kind of dehumanize people and get them to kind of do things they would never otherwise do within two weeks (laughs) and we see it begin here where dad after ripping off his fingernail sees books strewn about on the on the ground actually not strewn about they've been laid out in a, a really peculiar sort of pattern which he immediately assumes that the children have done. And so he, he starts to blame it on them. And that's, we start to see this first sort of rift of like your children are misbehaving. I mean, it has very much sort of a shining feeling to it in, you know, dad starting to take a, a more disciplinarian role with the, with the kids. I wondered about this. I mean, how did these books end up on the floor? They're really on the floor. I assume this isn't like just a delusion. Did the mirror people do this? Did he do it? How exactly did the books end up on the floor? Like physically? I'm just wondering. I think the dog did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a a very specific type of haunt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what it means. Yeah, the book can the book. The mirror can do all of these things to you psychologically, but physically all it can do is array books on the floor. <laughs> all right, well guys, I'm going to crack a beer here. Um I'm going to have myself a longboard island lager because I'm a big fan of Hawaii and I even have a Hawaii themed surfboard bottle opener. Aloha. All right, I too am going to crack open a beer. I've got a, uh, a podcast favorite, a New Belgium Triple. Let's see if we can get the good audio here. Oh, nice. Yep. Delightful. And I'll also add that I started with a little bit of the High West Rendezvous Rye to get the evening going, which, of course, I'm drinking out of my skull-shaped shot glass. That's nice. I thought you were going to say, which of course I'm drinking out of the bottle. (laughs) I wonder what Rich is getting. Is it going to be a nice Chardonnay? Rich has got something in his hand. I got a a bourbon and a a beer for for after. Man. Now you normally have the beer and then the bourbon. Yeah, I do. Well, I got got an early day tomorrow. Um... Uh, we're we're what you might call advanced drinkers, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we leave. We, we finally are returning to come back home on um, Saturday. 
I'm so I'm trying to avoid doing another grocery order, but I'm also running out of beer. So, <laughs> wow, you're rationing your supply. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, what is your beer? Same, same as same as last same as the last episode, a uh, Cigar City Highlight. Nice, nice. I could use a real cigar right now. Fancy ones, but I, I, I'm saving them for our last night here. So that's beside the point. What is the point is Oculus. So let's get to it. Uh, yeah, the dad is talking about hearing the kids messing around in his office at night. And yeah, it's sort of the the mounting delusion and the chipping away at his sanity and his goodwill towards his family members. You have the feeling that that's you know, starting to create resentment that's been bubbling up in him. But he's still trying at this point, you know, in the film. He's definitely still trying to connect to his kids and be be reasonable. Um, and he also uh, chastises them. If you're, if you're messing around with your mother's plants, cut that out too. Yep. Yep, because so the plants are already dying apparently. And, uh, but Tim is filled with logical explanations and he says, well, it's probably just problems with the water supply and maybe a bad tank. <laughs> I just realized as, as my, uh, my personal journey continues to intersect with these haunted house movies that I now have a cistern on my property. Wow. That's a little creepy. I don't know how I get the kids in there though. Yeah. No, I have to ask the mirror. I have to get up on the ladder later. And check it out. <laughs> You'll figure it out. <laughs> you're a resourceful guy. <laughs> Knowing your kids, I'm more concerned that you're going to need to pull them out of the cistern. Yeah, that seems, that also seems likely. <laughs> so at yeah. this point, Tim is walking around, pointing out the plants that she's arrayed throughout the house, little canaries in the in the coal mine. And they're they're still alive at this point, he helpfully notes, but she just says, give it some time, and says, there was another variable too, and now we meet Dog, <laughs> the character that doesn't get a name because she expects him to be like a red shirt on Star Trek. And she's thinking that the, she's going to feed him to the mirror, essentially, because she remembers these sort of vague connections between dogs in the previous stories, which I swear she has not drawn any explicit line to what happened to the dogs in any of those stories. But we will see that apparently their childhood dog, which we glimpsed earlier, will meet some kind of an end in the past. It was mad vague, John. It was mad vague. (laughs) (laughs) That is an inside joke, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, now we cut to Mason, the dog, and he looks like sort of dead-ish. <laughs> He's not doing too well in the past, and this is part of the dueling narratives between the siblings, is that one version of the story is that Mason just kind of died. And now we get to a flashback where apparently Dad just kind of has a gun, and he's arguing, and this is this is like the big fight. Alan and Marie have a somewhat similar on the surface bickering encounter that, you know, to the one that they had much earlier in the film. Well, not much earlier, um, but that we saw previously and it's the dynamics are totally different now. Like now there's real hostility and that sort of underlying trust and lightheartedness is just completely removed from this interaction. 
Well, and it's worth pointing out too. You know, he he, Alan makes reference to the kids that, you know, I heard you. I've heard you kids screwing around in here at night, and now we're getting more references to. You know, you've heard stuff around here. You you don't feel safe. That's why I got the gun. And it, it's so there's there is this sense that the mirror is starting to undermine relationships just by introducing this kind of uncertainty that if there are if there is sounds and movement and things, the tension in the house has just risen. And so the dad has reacted to that tension by buying a gun. It seems a, a little rash, frankly, but it's also we're introducing an element that's going to play a very key role further on. Well, it's weird that anyone would think in, with what we've seen, oh, uh, we need a gun. You know, like I don't quite know how the thought process went for him bringing this gun into it. Like nothing he's seen that we know of would imply that a gun is necessary. This kind of goes out and comes out of nowhere to me, I would say. John, you sound like a liberal cuck right now. <laughs> no problem that can't be solved with a gun. <laughs> Typical snowflake. Yeah. But here we get the immortal grotesque cow line where she's walking away and he appears to just, her husband appears to just mutter this and it just stops her cold. And and her, her acting is phenomenal in this scene too. Oh, it's always phenomenal because Katie Sackhoff is phenomenal even in Halloween uh, Resurrection. Resurrection. Thank you, Rich. So what do you guys think is, is happening with Grotesque Cow? Because it's so obviously Marie's silver bullet cooked up in a psychological lab to mortally wound this particular woman that I think it kind of demands some thought. Is the mirror reading I, people's minds here? I was actually going to say, I think that it's a voice coming from the mirror. I don't think it's coming from him. Yeah. I'm not even 100 that's his voice. Like, you even, like, w when you watch it, um, you know, so I've, I've, no, I've watched this at least a couple times in, in Surround, and the, the voice comes from a different corner of the of the room. It doesn't come from the perspective of where he's sitting. Well, wow. and Rich, on a, on a previous podcast, you gave a fabulous line reading that the real thing that sells the fact that this came from the mirror and not from Alan is his reaction when she turns around and says, what did you say? And he's just like, I don't say anything. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you, you literally, you nailed that the last time we spoke about this movie. So, Well, um, I think Rory Cochran is definitely in Rich's range as an actor. For sure. Um, but, I mean, well, Buster I, Rhymes is in his range, but... <laughs> Nobody's in Buster Rhymes range, John. Uh, Meryl Streep is not in Buster Rhymes range. But uh, I just think I, I think the point is 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 pretty clear after this many viewings that Rory Cochran didn't say this. This came from the mirror like a fucking bullet to hit her in the chest. I agree. I mean, I guess it's not even a question, really. But then the question becomes, so what do we conclude from the fact that it would know to say that to her? I guess that's where I'm going with this reading people's minds is that it clearly has her number by now. And how does it know that much about her? To some degree, like it, it goes back to like that, that beat with her looking at the, the scar in the mirror. Not that it has like the knowledge of all mirrors. 
but I think that that it has a, the ability to sort of see what you see in yourself. Like that's kind of my my interpretation. Like that's how it knows how to needle people. Um, is that it, exactly? Yeah, it understands like reflections. I'm just throwing it out there here, but is she seeing stuff from her past? Is she being fat shamed or something? Can we assume that she kind of has her own haunting, private haunting going on as implied by the mirror stuff, her looking into the other mirror and and whatnot. I think if this was her movie, we might be seeing all kinds of shit that isn't there from her perspective, but we can't because we're being privileged. The kids' memories are privileged in the viewpoint, the perspective that the film is depicting. Obviously we see some, some stuff from her perspective and from the father's perspective and stuff that they're not in the room for. But I think the movie has kind of indicated that we, if we, we're not seeing everything the parents see. Do you guys agree with that? Yes. And, but it does, as we've talked about before, when talking about this movie, it does raise the really interesting question of what the perspective of the movie is. You're absolutely right. I think that the phrase privileged is perfect. Right, that we mostly get the kids' perspective on things, and there are there are just these other times when we get what seems to be sort of an, an omniscient or just a, a, a more realistic recounting of what happened, even when they weren't there. Most of what we see is what they saw, and then every once in a while we get perspectives that are falsified memories or something that's somehow manipulated. So it, it really everything the the perspective shift, but that's so much of what this movie is about is that you can't trust what the camera is showing you. You can't you can't trust your own perspective, your own memories, and so the camera is gonna gonna flip back and forth between what really happened, what they think happened, what they saw, what they maybe remember that is flawed. It very much keeps you on your toes. I also get the distinct feeling, especially in this section of the film, where you're getting that that build from, as you said, like an idyllic relationship to this this like nightmare scenario that they're in. Especially with regards to the parents, that it seems that there's a lot happening that just doesn't even get a scene. Especially with the dad, there's a lot of drama going on with this mirror that is just a hundred percent off camera not referred to, not alluded to. He makes huge leaps in terms of how seduced he is by this thing with very little motivation that we're provided with. I think you're right. We get the least insight into his version of the haunting. I think we even get more of Marie being tortured than him. And here I've frozen it on this image of what she's seeing of her own reflection in the actual Lasser glass. And I have to say, it struck me playing the film as pretty minimal, but what we're actually seeing, pausing it, you see this sort of old age makeup that they've put on her and she just looks haggard and drawn and old and it's not, it's it's still relatively subtle. It's not outrageous. She's not looking at herself and seeing, you know, an elderly hag or something, but, but you can definitely clearly get the idea that the mirror is presenting the version of her that 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 she's insecure about becoming uh just you know by growing older and and less desirable that's 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 what she's wrestling with that's her psychological wound in the film 
This is just what parents look like. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I believe this if there was a toddler in the house, you know, for sure. <laughs> this is true story. I uh, I had a, a a meeting this morning, and before the meeting, I thought, oh god, my beard's gotten really long. I'd better shave. And I was like wrestling with the kids, and I only had a few minutes to do it. And so I started to shave, and I got a third of the way through my beard, and the battery died on my clippers. And I had to do my meeting with uh, just a a very random bit of my face shaved. It was was very embarrassing. Oh, wow. (laughs) If the mirror had shown me that, I I, I would just be like, yeah, that's that's about right. I thought you were going to say, and I, I had shaved off like several layers of skin on the side of my face. I didn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I'd use the staple remover to shave my face. <laughs> this one piece of beard won't come off. Oh, that's my nose. <laughs> All right. So uh, now the dog is freaking out at the where the mirror is behind the door of the that you know separates the foyer and the the lobby i mean i'm sorry the office where the mirror is and the dog bites marie and uh, alan yells that he's working in there all work and no play makes alan a dull boy i'm just going to say you know the the dog in the amityville horror scratched his claws bloody trying to get at whatever was in the basement. Mm-hmm. This dog's not even really trying to get in there. I mean, yeah, he's barking, but I don't know. <laughs> There's not a lot of commitment there. And, yeah, the dog definitely becomes another lever that this thing uses to, you know, as a as a fulcrum to drive to separate this couple. It is an added stressor for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this it's interesting to have like a second fight between these two characters right away, right after the the last one, and it's escalating. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's kind of weird. Is that an iMac in the corner of Kaylee's bedroom there? It could be. Yeah, I think two, so. Two thousand two. That sounds about right. That takes me way back. That would be the that would be the same model iMac that I moved to Los Angeles with. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. Back when you kind of looked like a hoodlum, as our coworkers told me at uh, okay. at Copelson. I still I still look kind of like a hoodlum, John. I'm just, <laughs> just old, haggard, tired hoodlum. <laughs> to thine own own self be true. Yes. Yeah. So uh, dad's going golfing. And he, he tells the kids, yeah, I'm going to need you to stay out of my office, okay? Well, the, the, despite the possession of ultimate evil, he's still like, he still has time to play the front nine. It kind of feels weird. It, it, like, it's almost as if Jack Torrance were having a normal interaction after he's already typed a few reams of all work and no play already. Um, to have like, oh, and then Jack Torrance went golfing after that. I actually, I, it kind of makes sense to me. He's he started a new business. Uh, he's a software developer. Golf is just where that kind of business happens, and so you can see that he hasn't left the 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 house for a long time. But like, 
by God, if, there, if there's something that's got to get done, he's probably got to go play golf with somebody to, to get his face out there and maintain some relationships and that sort of thing. And I like it as a, a, a sort of organic way of introducing the golf clubs, which are going to be uh, important factors later on in the movie. And he even says to the neighbor as a way of sort of smoothing over things, uh, you know, hey, let's we'll go we'll go play some golf later. Now I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I damn like it, Vic. It's good screenwriting that he's planting those seeds here, and I, I actually feel like it plays pretty organically. It, and also, just he's not completely you know he's not completely out out of out of his mind yet. We're building to that, but he's not there yet. Well, even the scene that you shamefully alluded to that takes place later. Um, he's able to still <laughs> be somewhat convincingly normal. Uh, that's like kind of the difference between him and say Jack Torrance, I would, I guess is the point I was making in, in that this guy continually, it's not like he's vacillating from full on crazy to, to normal because he hasn't, we haven't really seen him go completely crazy yet, but, but his ability to, at least pass for, for sane goes pretty deep into this film. So yeah, this thing with the dog, she lets the dog into the office. After the dog, after the dog has, has peed on the carpet. Right. Because she's just fed up. She's going to give it Mason what he wants and, you know, get him out of her face. And she closes the doors and nice little dissolve. She's gone. And the kids are sitting there outside of the office, and um, she can't she can't open the doors. Right? That's right. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, what the doors suddenly are apparently locked. So, what do you guys think is really happening in objective reality there? The the doors aren't truly locked, but if the mirror wants them to seem that way, they will. John, I don't think there is an objective reality. Right. That's that's deep, man. You're yeah. blowing my mind. Right. <laughs> I shouldn't have taken that edible before we recorded. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, John, is that you you might be you might be right that that that's what's going on there. Uh, this is always a part of the movie that I feel like I mentally like just check out a tiny bit because partly like that 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 detail that like that act of evil that you're describing that like, you know, it made her made her think that the doors were locked. It's just not that interesting in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of what happens in this, like the, the manipulations that are happening in this movie. Um, there's, there's something about the, the dog drama that always feels very, like a very thin thread um, mm-hmm. that they're trying to build around. Here. And as you said, yeah. what does it do? Except it just, it just leads to mounting, tension between the parents that kind of keeps going and going. I wouldn't go so far as to say this is like a subplot that, that goes nowhere or they're, you know, killing time or treading water or anything like that. But I definitely see your point, Rich. Like I, this is not uh, really a standout narrative thread in the film. (laughs) It's really, I mean, it's, it's, this is sort of the first step in what we're building to, right? Is like, what does the mirror do? First, it kills the plants, then it kills the dogs, then it moves on to the people. 
you know? And so it's, we're, we're just building the tension and this is the, the sort of lowest rung of tension. Second, second lowest rung, the plants, frankly, are the lowest rung, but. Right. Well, I love plants, especially a good succulent, but whatever. (laughs) No, no, all I can say is thank God they didn't have any rabbits because then this movie would be unwatchable. Uh, you know, I would have to remove it. I would disqualify it from the competition. Yes. So, yeah, we get some talk about dogs in general here. And the movie is making us ask, what is the deal with Mason, the dog's fate? Is it telling us something? Are we debating like what happened to the dog? Is that important in some way? All I can say, looking at what happens in this movie and in the backstories of the previous crimes is that the mirror drains plants, orchestrates the death of humans, but it full on gobbles the dogs down into mirror tummy town. Yep. Cause they disappear. Yeah. And that's the name of the episode. And we never <laughs> tummy town, <laughs> mirror, mirror tummy town. <laughs> Dog trained in dummy town. <laughs> um, well, but it would also, I mean, you never get like the ghost dog with the glowing eyes, right? Like, no, you get, you get no mirror eyed pups in the background. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the movie has a hot take that dogs have no soul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no cats either, so. Uh, well, we already knew they were soulless. Oh, I would not. I'm not kidding. That was just playing to the, the cheap seats. I don't believe that. Marisol had a ferret that was never seen again. <laughs> All right. So Timbo is still desperately throwing out various scientific theories and whatnot. And starting to chip away, I think, at Kaylee's resolve. I agree. I will say that his, you know, he's 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 starting to lay in about like fuzzy trace theory. He's got this like pretentious, you know, um, sort of condescending look in his eye, and like I'm I'm about ready to slap him. I don't know. It, it could be the the pseudo intellectual talk. Like he feels like he sounds like a college freshman, you know, especially with that haircut and those eyebrows. Like um, uh, this guy is not endearing himself to me at all at this point in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Time to crack a beer. Get off my lawn. <laughs> no, I, 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 yeah, he. There are some real insensitivities to what he's doing here. I think it gets worse in the next couple of uh, beats, and I think that's where I'll highlight it. But he he doesn't seem to realize what's at stake for her in this whole argument. He thinks he's helping her sometimes when it should be pretty obvious. If you have any emotional sensitivity at all that you're gut punching her, but we're not quite to that point yet. Well, an emotional sensitivity isn't the strong suit of this sibling relationship. That's true. That's a two way street. Absolutely. And narratively speaking, I mean, this is all about like, you have to, to sort of get your first big dramatic turn. Like you have to work Kaylee up to a point where she is willing to, to doubt herself. Right. Yep. Which, I, which I think is really where we're going in terms of like the, the, the contemporary thread of this story. Yeah, that that's exactly, that's the next, I guess you might even call that, that's the midpoint crisis for the protagonist. And we're, we're just about there. But first off, we go back into the past, and it's more Alan and Marie arguing, and this is where Marie is 
confronting her husband with the idea that there's another woman in the house, which is, of course, Marisol, his ghost lover. Well, and I also like that we get, we, we really start to get Kaylee's protective relationship with Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she was, as the older sibling, she was really sort of in charge of dealing with these big grown-up things that are really starting to rain down on them. When she opens the, the door to her bedroom during the argument, she just sees Tim standing there crying. And I feel like she's the one who sort of takes charge and is like, all right, we have to go downstairs. It's an it's an interesting dynamic between them. He's Tim Tim is very passive, I think, in the in the flashbacks. And it's it, it makes for a realistic and sort of interesting relationship. Yeah, I mean definitely kid brother, older sister dynamic. And now we're sort of reliving the memory where she saw they're playing the laser tag and Kaylee happens to end up by the window where Dad is cavorting uh, <laughs> with Marisol right in front of the mirror, and she pulls away from him. And is this dialogue him saying "Get back, get back"? Is that her? I don't remember dialogue. That's him trying to get her away from the window before the kids see. Ah, okay. So that's his dialogue. Yeah, which certainly implies some consciousness. I just keep wondering, what does he think is going on? Like this, does this woman pretend to be a neighbor? She like, what would be the somewhat sane version of this in, in his mind? I don't know. Does that matter? She's like some woman. She's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, guy. Oh, she was having an affair. He was it, having an affair. It's, it's, a, it's a cheat though. I mean, it's a complete cheat as a narrative to just, Oh, this guy, he'll still go play golf. He knows that he has a wife and kids, but he's just having this vague amorphous affair with somebody within the house that they live in. And that doesn't seem weird or surreal to him. Well, I think that he's, that he snuck in his mistress. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's not, that would not be a smart way to have an affair. But, but he know she came out of the fucking mirror. So what's her what's her story? Like what does she purport purport to be? Well, I'm I'm confused by your question. I think we're talking about what is Tim purporting her to be. But you're talking about what is the movie expecting I, us to believe? I am saying that, that the the movie is skirting around and cheating the fact that Alan Russell is having an affair with a woman who has no credible explanation for who she is or what she's doing there. She cannot appear to be, you know, a persuasive representation of, of a neighbor or whatever. She's literally come out of the mirror. How do you compute that with being halfway sane and playing golf and, and passing this off as, as nothing. And, and, you know, like what I'm asking you, what is, what is he, who does he, he think, who does Alan think Marisol is? I don't think, I mean, so that scene that we just saw is, is a, a sort of fabrication of Tim's memory. That's not like something that, that actually occurred. I don't think that Alan is, is really aware of Marisol in any, in any real way. I, Why does he write I, her I name that, over and over? 
why does Jack Nicholson write all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy? I think those are, those are things that are being whispered to him by the mirror that he, that he is, is just incorporating into his psychosis. I mean, my, my take is somewhere in between, which is that I've always just assumed I've always written it off as though he's working with a sort of dream logic, right? I mean, like in a dream, like, things happen to you and you don't necessarily question or like search for the backstory. It just, you just sort of accept things on face value. And I'd say that he seems like he's in a state of, I mean, it seems like that's the mirror's MO, right? Is that it just kind of like blurs the lines of, of fantasy and reality enough that you just kind of accept things at, at face value because they're happening. Well, and I would just say too, I mean, it's, so what we just saw was, was Tim's, doctored perception of it to make it seem like something realistic and not something supernatural. What Kaylee saw was dad sitting at the computer, staring blankly ahead while a woman seemed to be sort of massaging his shoulders. If I was in, as I interpret that, I don't think he's, he's necessarily aware of the woman behind him. He doesn't think there's a woman behind him. He is zoned out in, in, again, in some sort of psychotic world and just sort of oblivious to it or that it's, you know, again, it's this seduction is happening without him being consciously aware of it, certainly at this at this juncture of the story. It's possible that the whole affair thing is really just for the benefit of the other family members and it's yep. not really even that relevant to what's going on in his mind. Yeah, I think that that would actually make the most sense. There's no question that the mirror chose to reveal itself to Kaylee at that point just to to further drive a, a wedge between mm-hmm. Alan and Marie. I, I think like the first time I disagree with this, but the first time I prepared for this two part show, I thought that the mirror has a lot of cards in its deck and maybe it thought for this guy, I've got Marisol and it sends the ghost lover to dad because that's the right card to play for him. But I, now I'm thinking, yeah, maybe it's actually the right card to cause as much family discord as, as possible. I, I think that <laughs> in some ways this movie is like a stage play, you know, because we're debating all of these things. The characters are constantly debating things in almost like a legal framework of rational arguments going head to head. It's a very interesting approach. Well, and that's, we're getting ready to see uh, Kaylee and Tim debate the reality of what actually happened. Also, just just like use some like applied knowledge here too. It's that we know from uh, legend of hell house that you also just like, you never turn down ghost tale. Like, (laughs) yes, just you just go with it that's true and furthermore i would never invite my mistress to the house while the kids are home (laughs) so that's just not that's just not realistic no definitely not Not but but she's literally talking about there were no credit card receipts there was nothing to suggest an actual affair and and tim's like he was smart enough not to leave a trail and and then she literally says, if there was another woman, she was a ghost. Uh, now, I love what we're going to get here. So this argument is getting very heated, and you can see the, the, the emotion starting to pour out of them. 
Kaylee's going to snap and she's going to call dog Mason. And it's a, it's a really telling moment, I think in her psychology and how, how connected she is to what happened here. Uh, and in this moment, she's also talking about the temperature changing and you won't be able to call out, but this is the part where he's getting the upper hand because, you know, nothing is immediately falling into place to support her arguments and his logic is just becoming inescapable. And, and she, yeah, he, he says, this is, this is, I think, critical to their, their conflict where he's saying, you know, basically I, I got over this. You need to do the same thing. You need to take care of yourself more or less is what he's telling her. Although what's, what's fascinating is we're watching this knowing that this isn't what they're actually doing. Yeah. They're actually yeah. repositioning the cameras while they're having this conversation. Yeah. The wonderful thing about this sequence is that it's going to build us up to a, a false conclusion and this huge precipice of belief with her where she's literally about to fall off the cliff and accept the fact that everything she's thought is wrong and her dad was a murderer and she's a schmuck and her life is ruined and it's just absolutely devastating. And then the turn comes where the mirror basically says, Oh no, you were right. (laughs) And yeah, we'll get, we'll get there. Because it, yeah. it, I think it ultimately it's more cruel than anything. And I think the mirror allows this to happen because they're just – it's letting them do damage to each other. They're just basically yeah. trading body blows to soften each other up basically for what the mirror wants. Well, it is it is by not revealing itself up to this point, it has driven this wedge between them, right? Kaylee looks mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. That's what it does. It's, it sows discord. And the idea of which one of them is crazy becomes the the real argument here. Um, she says he needed to go batshit to get out of the mental institution. And then you're starting to wonder now, well, maybe she's the one that's crazy. And I think maybe the audience is supposed to think that perhaps, or at least contemplate the possibility because he's so rational and she's calling him crazy. And one of the things we know is that crazy people are the first to accuse others, Right. I think Jack tells Wendy that she's crazy in The Shining. She never accuses him of that. So Dog is trying to get out, and uh, he, Timbo, lets Dog out. I don't know how consequential that ultimately is. I think that's actually for the audience as much as anything. It's unfortunate that we didn't get to see the bobcat pounce on Dog 10 seconds (laughs) after he got out of the store. Yeah, Dog gets its its freedom in the canyons of L.A. What could go wrong? (laughs) Torn apart by by coyotes. Yep. (laughs) So as we've been talking, the argument continues to escalate, and she's really wavering and starting to yeah she can't even face him and she's kind of wrestling with this horrible truth and he apologizes but he has to he doesn't really seem to get what the implications are of her suddenly accepting his version of events and and what that would represent i i think that even though this is not a legal drama or even a psychological drama, it's a horror movie. I think it successfully earns this plot development that could be described as 
we question here, it, could this all be about mental illness and false memories? If only yeah. like for a few seconds here, because partially even with all she knows and she, that she has experienced, Kaylee herself is faltering on that point. So how can we be certain? She doesn't even know for sure what movie she's in. How do we know? She knows it's not good either way. And I love how long we hang on her face. I think this is what I've paused it on. She's going to process all of that. It's just marvelous. The performance, the writing, the directing, the cinematography, all of it. I do think there's a there's like a French indie drama in here that you know that's like like, like Gaspar No directs or something where <laughs> the answer is that like she's made the whole thing up and that like all this horrific violence that we see is still just like a representation of like her internal like dialogue going on. Yeah, you could see a montage that like would this is what really happened later in the film that would completely undo everything that that seemed to be supernatural. Like I think movies do that. And yeah, Gaspar Noé is definitely the type of filmmaker who might uh might take that on. There's actually there's an old uh, oh gosh, I can't believe I didn't put this together. There's an old Robert Altman film that I believe is called Mirrors. That is essentially that idea. It's a, a, a woman sort of having a mental breakdown, I believe murdering her husband and, you know, just, just losing touch with reality. Although it's very much clear that she's just losing touch with reality. There's not really a supernatural component to it. There's also a John Cassavetes film called Mirrors, I believe. Yeah, I'm pretty there, sure. There is. I could not tell you what that, that movie is about, though. Don't recall. I would have known in grad school because I actually did a lot of film studies. But uh, his plots were pretty esoteric anyway. It's really about characters. But it's interesting how many films are called Mirrors, first off, um, or in some way deal with this. But, yeah, she. I just love – this is such a standout scene for, for Karen Gillan here. I absolutely love it. She's just – devastated by the implications of this and what it means for every decision she's made. And he does not get it. I, I still hate him. I get it right here. This is where I get it. But the mirror is enjoying this. And I think the mirror allows this to play. And then it, you know, when the time is right, when she's gutted, that's when it decides to do the exact same thing to him. She walks out and she looks and she sees what they actually did what we alluded to before during this whole argument, they were actually unknowingly doing the kind of shit that the mirror has people do, which was, you know, reposition the cameras and all this stuff while they, in the, in the cameras actually capture that. And her reaction to it is really relief because <laughs> it means that she's not crazy. And Tim's reaction is the opposite. You know, this is where this is where he gets his gut punch and his world ends as he sees the tableau that the mirror has presented them to say, hey, guys, no, I'm real. <laughs> it's interesting that what the mirror chooses to do is so innocuous, like it, it really is just a taunt. It's just mm -hmm. a middle finger to them. Like it is a decorative affront. It is in no way psychologically damaging to anyone except maybe for for tim so it, it is like it reached the as as you put it john like it reached the precipice of like the damage that not revealing itself could do to them psychologically 
And then now it's like, okay, well, let me like change tactics. Yeah, it, it it's yeah. In, it's toying with them. It's getting the best of both worlds because what it not being real was more devastating to her than the existence of a murderous mirror because that means her father was a piece of shit and she's delusional. I totally get why that would be worse. Then the brother, I mean, because the brother thinks he's helping, but he's actually stabbed her in the heart. And then the mirror not being an illusion and saying, hey, look, I'm real. When he's convinced her to quit and leave, well, that would be no fun for the mirror if they actually did that. It doesn't want them to leave. So it just quickly turns around and says, all right, I'll do something that you can't deny that will convince both her and and Tim. And it wanted to hurt her really badly. Once it had that fun, now it's time to get serious and go to the next level. It knew it was kind of risking them, but I think it knew that it was it could play them like a fiddle any way it wanted to. There's no fight here, really. I talked about last time this this she thinks it's a duel, but it's not a duel of equals. It's just a game for the mirror, and she does not really know the rules, not the true rules, not all of them, and she certainly doesn't know that she's losing this entire time. So now the shoe's on the other foot. It's the brother who's destroyed. They've both been gut-punched into putty one at a time. What elevates the scene to genius is that it was really both characters just doing exactly what the mirror wanted them to do. This is much more difficult and complex than convincing you there's a Band-Aid on your finger when there isn't. They're moving the cameras and things around in very specific ways. Uh, It's such a gear shift, a big gear shift to show that it's capable of this. It takes its power and its level of insidiousness to another level entirely. And what's also kind of funny is that for her at this moment, she's totally activated again. Like she thinks we're back in my game and the duel is back on. (laughs) Ha! She says. This is also almost exactly the midpoint of the film. Uh, We are are 52 minutes in with 51 minutes and 50 seconds left. And it's such a fascinating detail that in addition to turning the cameras uh, to face each other, they also move the plants under the cameras. And so this is when we reveal that the plants are also dying. And so it's, it's, it's confirming her suspicions, confirming everything that she said really all at once. The plants really make it sort of undeniable in a way that this is exi- – the cameras are not what she predicted. The plants are what she predicted. And so the mirror wants to call attention to those plants being dead. And to do that, it just has them move it. Just put it next to the cameras that you're also moving. It's very manipulative. Yeah, it's flaunting its power here. So, yeah, the kids are debating, like, are there the, – can they make phone calls? And she, she – posits there's a radius of influence that this mirror has. I think she says that it's 30 feet, and I, I, I'm not sure she's correct. I think it goes beyond 30 feet. That's one of the things I thought, is that she bases it on where the plants are dead. So right. She plants throughout the house, and so when she gets to a place where the plants are still alive, she assumes that that is the limit of the mirror's sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. But it's entirely plausible that the mirror simply did that to give them a false sense of confidence that they, if they got outside of that radius, that then they could use the phone or then they would they would could trust their senses. Yep. And I don't think that that's actually the case. It seems like the mirror's uh, 
is able to reach much further than that. I think it decides when and how it will drain a plant or not. It's not that the plants are automatically going to be drained. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It's it's a choice. And we start playing with phone calls here where she gets a, a call from Michael, her fiance, and she goes, 50-50, that was even him. Because she's suggesting we can't trust our phones and the calls. And the movie's going to get a lot of mileage out of that. And I think it actually really works. It makes the movie kind of unique. Like the fact that <laughs> I wouldn't call it a prank caller, but in some way the mirror is a ventriloquist. And it certainly affects various phone personas throughout the film. And I, I think that's a tough thing to pull off, but I think the movie generally is successful at that. So like, why does it have power over electronics? I mean, why does a mirror have any power, I guess, would be the, the counter argument to that. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you'll buy that the, the evil mirror can do one goddamn thing, I guess you could buy that. Um, if, if it can, if it can eat a dog, it can make a prank phone call. <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely, I think, a bit of a stretch to, to, to have any evil amorphous power just be able to impersonate various people on phones. <laughs> that's a bit of a – that's a bridge farther than many writers would have the, the balls to go. I mean, if you think about it, it goes back to – even Lake Mungo or I don't know there, I feel like there, there are a lot of movies we've encountered here. They just get to that sort of the ingrained white noise idea that the supernatural reveals itself through electronics, right? Like that's what the, the tape recordings in the changeling are about that, that, you know, recordings, electronics, these things Dogs. These things are able. These things are all able to sense something that we can't actually sense, and thus are open to manipulation by those forces. The movies. I mean, Flanagan obviously is very aware of those tropes, and he makes use of them. And it's one of the great things about leaving the actual entity in the mirror so open ended. We have so much information about it. We know that it defends itself. We know what it does to people. We know that it has a proclivity for eating, you know, sucking the energy out of plants and eating dogs and, and people's teeth. But we don't know what it what it is. And so that gives him a lot of range to just play with the ideas that we all bring into movies about supernatural entities. If you're talking about a haunted house movie, it's going to fuck with the dogs. You know, it might be it might be dead birds outside the house. It might be That's beside uh, the point. I mean, Vic, that's all I totally fine with that. But in Paranormal Activity, the, the demon never calls up Katie Featherstone and says, hey, uh, this is your pizza delivery man, but actually I am a demon. Like, I, it's hard to pull off the idea that it, it talks. It pretends to be a, a lover, that the, the husband has some kind of sexual relationship. This is far beyond, like, footprints in in salt in the hallway or a dog dying or a smell or the TV turning on and off or like, this is like almost like personality stuff. This is like a, a being an entity having human characteristics, actually being persuasive at impersonating human beings. 
it's interesting. I, I suppose it is, and yet I accept it as a, a capability that the mirror has without blinking. I guess what I'm really saying is that it's a tribute to the skill of the filmmaking here, both the writing and the directing and everything else, that that we're not really tripping over that. I'm just calling attention to the fact that it's quite ballsy to even be attempting that that shit. And the fact that it works as well as it does, just, you know, props. John, you're right and I hate you. It's fine. <laughs> Both of those things are true. uh he's calling out and this is a key scene where tim thinks he's outside on the phone it's actually a huge moment a huge reveal and suddenly we realize and he realizes that he never left the house yeah he's he's starting to have a hard time like grappling like you can tell that he's disoriented and she's just like filming him with the camera and trying to document it He's he's going to pieces at this point. And now very traditional segue into the past, like zooming in on his Tim's eyes to lead us into his memory of ten years ago when they were kids. The daughter comes in on her finds her mother staring into the mirror, mesmerized. There definitely are interludes where we think the mirror is showing characters things like Mom is watching some kind of movie here. She's mesmerized by whatever it's pumping into her head. And I love that when when we get to the dinner scene, that what we we cut from that to dinner, and there is burnt toast on the table. <laughs> yes. Because nothing, nothing symbolizes that <laughs> things are, are askance in the house, like the, ter- the the toast being burnt. Yeah. If anything, it, it would be heavy handed if they made too much of a, a big deal out of it. But yeah, the implication here is that mom just made these kids burnt toast for dinner. That's how around the bend she already is as she shotguns glasses of red wine. Well, I love that even later in the film, the the kids like breaking point for putting up with dad's shit is that like we're out of groceries. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Once the fridge is empty, it's like, all right, fuck this. We got Yeah, we'll, we'll, put, we'll put up with your ghost nonsense only so far. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to the neighbors because we're out of pop tarts. <laughs> yeah, but here Kaylee is is again referencing the fact that she's heard women a woman's voice, uh, but she hasn't seen her. Tim says I have, and so now we're getting this is this is all confirming mom's suspicions. And yet if you listen to what Tim says, it doesn't make any sense. So it really does just play on her insecurities. She's going to connect the dots. She's going to fill it in with whatever she wants, sort of regardless of what Tim is actually telling her. Yeah, for Marie, it's it's proof that it's not all in her head, which yeah. is what the mirror wants. Um, well, this I believe this is where... Tim says, uh, this kind of goes back to answering John's question earlier. Tim says, I think she lives in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't make any sense, which is also what Vic was alluding to here that it, it, it doesn't, it's illogical, but it's still a, a third party confirming the suspicions 
that Marie has, even if it's nonsensical. I think she lives in the office. Like, what the fuck? It doesn't correlate to reality at all, other than the fact that it's someone other than Marie or her daughter confirming the existence of this other woman, which is in her state of mind all she needs. So she goes into the office, Marie does, mom, and this is a big moment. And I think she's about to do something where I, I think, yeah, well, first she finds the uh, all work and no play makes Alan a dull boy, which is his middle school level scrawling of the name Marisol on some papers as if it were her his uh, trapper keeper if you grew up in the 80s. <laughs> Although... When I look at this paper, I mean, it really does like the all, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Like it reminds me of the ring. I think it's the ring where the, the, the kid is absentmindedly scratching like hair over the, the faces uh, of, of people in drawings or pictures and stuff. Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem like him dreamily scrawling out the name of this woman that he loves so much as it is him thinking about something else entirely, you know, he's thinking about murdering his family while he's sort of absently writing this over and over again on the, on the paper to back up your theory, which I'm buying into that the house uh, house, (laughs) yeah. Uh, the mirror is having Alan do things unconsciously for the benefit of the other characters when it may not really have meaning to him. That's what you're saying. And I think I'm buying into that. Yeah. Like his actual level of belief in or emotional investment in Marisol might be minimal. It's just that it knows what it's doing to his wife. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think you could legitimately question at this point if Alan has actually seen Marisol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did see her in that very early scene, right? Where he, she scared him. Didn't, didn't yeah. End. Yeah. Where he s- squeezes the juice box all over himself. Yeah. So she's about to throw something at the mirror here, I believe, which you wonder, like, does she actually associate any of these goings on with the mirror yet? Or is this just a coincidence? She's already been gazing into the mirror, but we don't know what it's doing to her. Yeah. She's, Looking at a first off, she's looking at this photo of her broken family, broken glass on the frame, symbolizing the the fracture of the family bonds, relatively obviously, but still okay. And and also a, a trope of the horror film, right? Like we all get with there's, there's there's been a lot of broken picture frames over the course of this. Of this <laughs> yeah, it does seem like sort of a. This seemed like par for the course. You could go so far as to call that a cliche of the subgenre. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll add to the list. We'll add that to the list. Yeah. Yeah. So she threw something and of course missed the mirror because you can't hit the mirror, but she appeared to be throwing something in the mirror and this is up for interpretation. Did she piss off the mirror or, or did it just decide to, to take it to the next level? This is immediately uh, followed by what the subtitles call loud whooshing. And uh, Marie is seized by some invisible force, uh, which is projecting from the mirror. And now she's riveted to the mirror and whimpers. And you see a sort of malevolent uh, reflection of herself, which does not 
sync up with the actual her in the mirror and it's staring out at her and uh, I think what we're going to kind of get here is that she's being possessed in some way but before we get there she unbuttons her dress great little touch of a Cronenberg right here with the uh, she opens it up and sees the cesarean section wound weeping yeah yeah it's gotten like obscenely gross her c-section scar opening up i find i find the the whoosh moment i I do think that she's pissed the mirror off right like she's she in that moment becomes a threat to the mirror and what does the mirror do it defends itself and so it defends itself by taking it up five notches and saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna obliterate your consciousness right now you're gonna you're gonna have a psychotic break, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna push you to that point because you're not gonna throw anything at me ever again. And but that that whoosh moment is a weakness. It doesn't work. This is like I get that they've set up the C-section scar that that's sort of the, the it's that's it manipulating her into this kind of psychotic break. But I don't know. It's it's just weak. It's just a weak way of illustrating it with like a burst of air. It reminds me of the babysitter in paranormal activity three. Right. Well, that puff I, of air. Just, yeah. Just in terms of like a, like execution though, which I think is what you're talking about. It also, it also is sort of a misdirect. Like it feels like something being, uh, it feels like she's being, uh, possessed. Um, yeah. just the way that it, it's shot, the way that her body moves, like the way that the, the sound, executes like the movie makes it feel like she's going to like she gets blown back and like she's gonna look forward and her eyes are gonna light up and now she's the 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 evil version of her former self but but she's not she's sort of enraptured by this alternate version of herself yeah when she sees the the different different reflection in the mirror yeah Mm i i think that um it, it doesn't sync up with her herself she's not her anymore at a certain point here. Like it goes beyond the MO of, Oh, well she thinks she's doing X, Y, and Z, but she's actually not. And it like, it's clearly like there's no explanation for what she's doing. She's just become a, you know, a feral demonic ish animalistic presence. There's not, you know, she thinks she's buttering toast and watching the local news. No, like there's a, a, a turning point that goes well beyond just perception versus reality games that the mirror has been playing it. She gets possessed here, but the kids come in, they're very concerned. You know, she's sort of staring into the mirror and then we don't really get a malevolence yet. She's just kind of, which is great. She's got, yeah, she chokes him, right? Yeah. Like suddenly she, she's almost, she looks sad and, it's not foreshadowed. It's not a jump scare, but yeah, she suddenly starts choking, choking her son. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of choking in this movie. But what's going on here? What's the, the, the mirror's plan is that she's going to, she's going to kill the kids. I mean, I, I mean, I know that that's its standard MO, but okay. So mom's after. Yeah. And this, then dad uh, comes in and, and, and actually puts an end to it. Yeah, he's less around the bend than she is all of a sudden. I think she's more of a puppet at this point than he is. He he still has some agency left, and he's questioning what she's doing. 
like she's in the, in the horse race. He got out to a big lead and then suddenly in the final turn, she just like completely lapped him. Well, that's the idea, right? Is that that whoosh was her just completely again, either being possessed or, you know, however you want to interpret it. But that was her passing him on the uh, racetrack to crazy. Yeah, exactly. And as I think Vic has been theorizing this whole show, a lot of his stuff seemed like it was aimed at him, but in reality it was aimed at her. And both the, the mirror may have picked her to go first all along and the shit it was doing to him was just designed to accelerate her downfall. And it, it more or less planned exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, he's mostly, up to this point, he's mostly gotten lazy, bitten his fingernails more, and bought a gun. Also, he's been out playing, he's been out playing golf, and I'm telling you, the, the mirror just, like, it appreciates leisure time. It understands that he, you know, he goes, he blows off steam, and that's why he doesn't end up chained to a wall. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he still has a pretty mean sleeper hold in his back pocket that he can pull out. Yeah, he, he, different, he's different he's, style he's, of choking. <laughs> I, I, I do love that. that, that as as you point out, he's he's still part. He's still like the sane one in this equation, but mm-hmm. but being the sane one involves choking your wife out and <laughs> and chaining her to a wall. At least it's a textbook choke out. You know, it's not like a wild man's attack. It, it, it's pretty uh, clean <laughs> MMA rules. Like <laughs> he he rubs her elbow because Kaylee comes out and. And sees dad choking mommy and his reassurance is that he's like massaging her elbow. Yeah. Like mommy's okay. I, I think this is another evidence of the lasser glass being cruel, throwing this at this guy who who's still just normal enough, I think, to be tortured by what he's in the middle of here. I, I think this is his last victim scene. It might be argued. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because this is it, right? He's gonna he's gonna pull he's gonna pick up the phone to call to go. All right, we gotta call, we gotta I gotta call somebody. Mm-hmm. I I can't help but feel like there's there's actually a little bit of a missed opportunity here with the idea that like the mirror obviously can't reach the kids as we discussed before, but it mm-hmm. can reach adults. And the fact that in the the current day story it it can reach them and it it doesn't. Uh, I feel like we're missing a, a sense that, like, the mirror, like, sort of savors the ability to, to go back and reach these two that it missed in childhood. It's interesting that it doesn't replicate the games that it plays with the parents with the kids when the kids are adults. It doesn't just say, oh, good, now you're old enough and I'm going to play on your insecurities the way I did your parents. It it plays a completely different game with them, but I guess maybe that's inevitable because they know so much more about the mirror that it can't it, really sure. do that. It's on a shorter timeline, right? Mm-hmm. It's not time to, to work their, their body insecurities. We're going to have to, we're going to have to fuck with your entire perception of reality. 
It, uh, so it has then, more like two hours than two weeks, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And it, but when Dad is going to call the the police or the, the ambulance or whatever, and then we get the whispering in the background. We also get a flash of the lights, which goes back to that idea that there's something connected to electricity when it comes to the mirror working its uh, its its mojo. It's a glamour. Is another word for illusion. Yeah. yeah, it's it's working its mystical deceptions. Absolutely, the movie flags to us that phone call is not legit. It's not a call at all, um, setting us up for the prank calls. I think. Yeah, and um, I think we're about to get to the point where Tim is looking at the computer screens. Uh, but first we get a, a memory of young Tim and the pounding on the door. Their mother has besieged Kaylee and Tim. And we bridge from that to, yeah, now we're talking about the flagrant intercutting between timelines. That's exactly what the movie is doing at uh, an hour and four minutes in. And it's starting to get more, it's starting to get more rapid too. Yeah, much more rapid. All right, yeah, here's what I was alluding to. Tim comes in and looks at all the computer screens, and he sees on monitors images of Kaylee that do not correspond to what she's doing, what he sees him her doing with his own eyes. But the images in the computer screens are more obviously fucked up or weird, like she's like sort of creepily walking towards the camera, and I think to me, this is like where he should have called into question that the, 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 the mirror can change what you actually see even on screens. Like maybe the objective, what the actual footage would be is real, but that's not what you're going to see if you look into a screen and that's going to be very important later, but he never, he doesn't bring this up what he's seeing. I think that's like a very subtle thing, but I think it's kind of important. And then we're back to the flashback where, where dad is sort of explaining mom's very sick. She's going to need you guys to leave her alone. Yeah. So stay, stay out of the office, stay out of the bedroom and she's going to be, and she's going to be fine, which is sort of interesting because there's no end game, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's not going to be better. So it's not, you know, you can tell that dad has really passed. As we said, he, he's passed the Rubicon here. Yeah, he's he's fully disheveled. You get the sense he probably has no fingernails at all, probably at this stage. Yeah, but but he uh, yeah, it, it's just sort of an act. Like he can just access his old self or his sanity enough to kind of pull out like calling his son Champ and his daughter Princess. But it's it's sort of a caricature. This is how I feel when I have to talk to my kid the morning after a podcast. <laughs> yeah, stay clear of that room. Damn, <laughs> just like Daddy has a headache. Yeah, <laughs> salvaging whatever humanity I have left. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know the feeling, man. <laughs> yeah, he tells him, "Hang out in the office and play video games." <laughs> I thought you said we weren't allowed in here. Tim says. Uh, yeah, a lot going on with lights, uh, Vic. As you mentioned, I, I that hasn't. I didn't really ponder that, but you're right. There's something. It's important when the lights flash. 
And then we're back to the present and we get Kaylee handing out apples uh, as a way to set up what is what the, the horror that is coming. Yeah, probably the as, best scene in the movie. As they're, as they're changing light bulbs and eating apples. If you really understood the mythology as well as she does, you, you might realize you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation with the placement of apples and light bulbs within inches of each other. I gotta say, I actually find the apple light bulb scene to be a little less effective with each viewing. I, I really like it. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but but I I have always I felt strongly about it, and I think at every progressive time we've gone through the cut, I I kind of like it a little less. Interesting. Maybe when we because get there. Does, yeah, it does seem to like violate the rules that we've set up just a tiny bit. Now, Rich, I see that that Alan is is bringing up a, a stew of some sort. Yes. To bring. What 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 can you tell from here? What what kind of stew is that? Is it like an Indian curry? We we have a stew expert on the podcast. Yeah. Now, guys, I do want to know, and I'm I thank some, you. I'm seeing some put some potatoes. Yeah. That, that looks like a chuck roast. I don't think we're talking about like a short rib kind of situation. There's definitely some carrots involved. <laughs> I literally put in my notes here. Uh, from two weeks, three weeks ago when I watched the movie, dad is nice enough to bring a plate of chicken vindaloo up for mom. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the food is so bad that she elects to eat the bowl. (laughs) No compliment to the chef. That's for sure. Yeah. And now we're really establishing the rapid toggling of the timelines as we're going back and forth between past and present. And she watches that a bulb that Tim just changed has now burnt out. And so this is where yeah. we're starting to set up this uh, this scare. Although Tim is gone. And so where is Tim while this is happening? What do you guys think? I think, I mean, maybe it will be clear when he comes in and finds her uh, with, you know, in the, is stricken by what she thinks she's done. Uh, but, yeah, who knows exactly where he is. I do think it's funny that this thing, and I think this might be what Rich is getting at, that the Apple light bulb thing is just a prank for the mirror. It could have made her do it for real. That would be easy peasy. So we should be asking why it doesn't. And I, I guess maybe it's just part of playing the long game with Kaylee and Tim. Well, in what other scenarios does it have we seen where it forces you to hurt yourself only to reveal that you did not? Not at all. Right. That's what you makes know, this different. It's usually the opposite. Sure. What does it have to gain? I mean, I, I guess you could say that it's it's scaring her. Like it's reminding her that it has that power. The best answer I have for that is that it sets up her killing her boy, her fiancé. In that when that happens, there is a, at least a beat where she's convinced that this is another fake out. And then, in yeah. fact, no, it's it's not. She actually did it. So that heightens the cruelty of that moment. And maybe it even leads her to be more cavalier with doing it in the first place. It's also because they've set up the personality of the mirror, you get the sense that it enjoys this. Yeah. It enjoys this moment. Oh, she spits the blood on the broken light bulb. That's mm-hmm. ah, rich. I, it's still really really gets me and then when she pulls the out of her tongue out of her mouth i think she's feeling pain here 
don't don't pause it on this, John. Can we just can we just keep going? <laughs> it's very it's very effective. And I mean, like John, I think that your your argument holds some weight. I I just also see the flip side of it, where it's like you could have made this real, and it would have been like more horrific to have just had had it been it be a reality. I, I think though, then the next question is okay. Well, she wouldn't be able to continue with her whole game. Like she would have to be just focused on getting to an emergency room at that point. What's her game at this point? They're both the, like the, like moving forward. Like what is what is their game? Like this thing. Like the whole the 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 plan goes off the rails. Like from here on out. Yes, but it, they've, they've already lost. Right. But I mean, I guess I'm suggesting that if she's really crippled by this and bleeding from the tongue, I don't think she's going to be caring about anything except getting help at that point. And I don't think that's what the mirror wants. Look, man, Rosentock, like he, his hand got pulled straight through a set of silverware he wrapped a towel around it and was back to trying to record this. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I think he was a little more crazy and a little more committed. She's pretty crazy too. Like, yeah, I know that she's the yeah. same one. I know that she's the only one that knows that that comprehends the truth. But like, she's 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 pretty uh she's pretty unhinged from reality. Yeah. Now, this is the moment I think that I that I talked about in one of the previous podcasts where as the TV goes out, we're going to see an image of mm-hmm. adult Kimely in the static. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, how did you get that pause? Because I, I cannot go frame by frame. So I, all I know is I saw a screaming woman rendered in black and white. That's all I could I could make out. It's I, I got it well enough that I'm pretty sure it is Karen Gillan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in the the screen there, which again just the merging of timelines, the blending of of past and present. Uh, it, it really just seems to emphasize that point. And I don't really know what to make of that. Like the idea that the the kids have this memory of seeing their future selves, how that ties into the mythology or even the themes of the movie. I don't have a strong read on. Dad's gazing into the mirror. What I like to call watching a movie. He's seeing whatever the the mirror wants him to see. He's got the broken picture of the family, like set back up again on his uh, desktop. <laughs> Does he? Oh, uh, yeah. It's, you can see it in the wide shot. That's great. I love the. It's on my list. Like <laughs> that's on my list. She keeps asking him for things, and the answer is always. That's on my list. <laughs> but yeah, the the idea back to the spider giving you these narcotics that you're living in this state of you're you, yeah, you 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 feel less. You're you're under the sway of these tranquilizers that disconnect you from the horror of your situation. You know what he sounds like? What are you doing here? Oh, the guy that got a lobotomy in session nine. Man, that's what he sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's somewhat equivalent to a lobotomy. Absolutely. There is something, as the kids are interacting here after that exchange, 
where you can see the way that this trauma is, is sort of hitting Tim more directly. And again, it goes back to that relationship between the two of them where she's, she still has just because of her age, the wits about her. Okay. I'm, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go talk to mom. I want to know what's wrong with mom. Dad's dad's not here anymore. So I need to, I need to sort of grow up and you can just see that Tim is so traumatized that he kind of can't act. Yes. I, th- I think there's a bit of a, a, a credit to the, the writing here too, is that there's a consistency between their, their childhood personalities and their adult personalities that that's very consistent. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of my early criticisms, the first time we talked about this movie is I don't think the kids match. I don't think they really look like they've, you know, grew up to be the same actors. That's just the way I see it. But I think it's, for me, it's pretty glaring, but definitely there's a consistency in their the personality of the characters. I want to say that she goes in, Kaylee's like going to talk to mom, beast mom, and I can't get away from imagining what finding your mother like in the state that she finds her mother here, what it would do to a person in terms of psychological damage. And Kaylee's the one that stayed out of the institution, which... Damn, I mean, that is a credit to her mental toughness. Because she comes in, she finds her mother has eaten a plate. <laughs> the mirror has turned her into, like, some kind of savage, mindless creature. This this scene is brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is exactly what I was talking about with the fingernail scene. That, like, you could put this in a Saw movie and it would fit. And so the fact that they're able to get this in alongside the creepy supernatural stuff is is really impressive. This is just the the, the makeup on um, Katie Sackoff as the screaming creature in the corner now is really just a a a, a treat for genre fans. Is a, is, is a way I think of it. Yeah, it, it's pretty nasty. It's quite convincing and I won't go, I won't say it's over the top, but it's definitely like in your face. (laughs) Oh yeah. This is, this is where the kids call people in the phone book because you know, it's 2002 and they're trying to get uh, a doctor and the same voice gives the same answer. Every number they call, which yeah, it's been set up, but it's a pretty aud- audacious mythology that the mirror, you know, can play this specific of a game with people that it says, well, you know, have your dad call. <laughs> well, it goes back to what we've talked about in the past, which is the the need to isolate the characters, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this movie does really well is make sure that these kids do most of the things that you would do if you were sort of stuck in this situation. We need help. How do we get help? Well, the first thing you do is call for help. Well, the mirror's ahead of you there. Okay, what's the next thing you do? All right, I'm going to go next door and try and get another adult to help. So, of course, she goes to the neighbor, and that doesn't work. But it's one of the things that makes horror movies in general work is – I need to know that the characters are doing the things that I would do if I were in this situation. And Kaylee does those things. She's a smart kid. And it mm-hmm. may, and, and, it, and you see that pay off in how smart she thinks she is 
when she's dealing with the mirror later on, that goes back to the consistency of character between the younger version and the older version. She does all the stuff that you would expect a kid of her age to do to try and get out of this. Yeah, you're you're definitely not yelling at the screen with this movie saying, oh, these characters are so stupid, which I think is definitely a credit to the overall intelligence of the script and the movie. Um, I just think it's funny that the mirror can do voices, that that's in its repertoire. But this reveal with the neighbor is great. Um, and it's I am struck that the, the dad can be so convincing with this guy and tell a wonderful reveal at the end of the scene where you see that he has no fingernails left. I, I will say that the, the phone thing, it's, it's just a much smarter twist on, like, the phone lines are dead. Right. Yeah. True, but harder to pull off because it just requires a higher level of sophistication of the antagonist that you have to sell to the to the audience. Ugh, the fingernails are yeah. all gone. Just awful. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> but at the same time, while he's like saying, "Yeah, we'll play the front nine at Arrowhead," like he's so money. His lying is so smooth. His act is so polished. He's crazy and maybe even evil now. But he's not stupid. I struggle with the, the neighbor a little bit in terms of that, like, that would be your immediate reaction is just to return the kid back to their house based on, like, what Kaylee presumably was telling the neighbor. But, uh, but uh, I don't know. I guess, like, it's, it's not what, – what else would you do? Call the police? On your neighbors? I don't know. I, I guess it's like it's it's practical that, that their response would be to bring the kids back over to the house. But I think it would be on a, a case by case basis and b- kind of based on your relationship with your neighbor as that guy. And you know, kids say and do things that you're not going to take as gospel a lot of the time. And if he really thinks this guy is a solid guy, I think he's going to give him the benefit of the doubt. The police returned one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims to his apartment when he escaped. <laughs> wow! Yeah. As a, as a reminder, there, there's a there's a good true crime podcast called called uh, I think Broken Hearts. It was about this family that they ended up like murdering their like five children, and uh, but the, all the lead up to it. Now that I think about it, is like the kids like kept escaping and like getting to the neighbor's house and saying like they're not feeding us and you know like keeping us in cages and stuff like that and. And uh, the neighbors just like return them back to the to the home. So I I totally yeah. take it back. So here we suddenly see that Kaylee is leaning against the mirror without knowing it, baiting that trap. So this establishes for the audience that this can happen, and she can be moved into position like a pawn on a chessboard without even realizing it. She doesn't seem appropriately alarmed by this. Yeah, yeah. This would be a big big takeaway for me. <laughs> Yeah, she seems intensely proud of herself for catching it in time and being like, ah, you think you're smart. I think this is definitely where she's coming apart, though. I think, like, you know, she thinks she's still playing the game, but this is where when she smashes her own timer, you sort of realize that she's – this is all a game to the lesser glass, but for her, it's becoming a losing battle. Yeah, here's where the two Tims look at each other, and it seems that young Tim definitely sees old Tim, but he doesn't confirm it. You almost get the sense that the mirror allows it, like the because the lights blink out when it happens. So you you get this weird sense that 
the mirror has somehow merged the two timelines for this one brief moment. Almost just to, to, I don't know, shatter Tim's sense of reality even further. I mean, that's a, that's a reach. Like there's not really a good explanation for it, but it's young Tim and old Tim both have their worlds briefly shattered by having to, having to confront one another in that moment. So meanwhile, Kaylee's getting kind of sloppy and emotional, even though she's going through her plan, she breaks the flower pot and that's going to turn out to be big in terms of consequences. And like she told her fiance that if, if he didn't hear from her in an hour or whatever it was, like every hour, then that was bad because ostensibly she's with her psycho brother. So the idea that he would show up while, if she's been out of contact for a while, should have crossed her mind, but it doesn't seem like she's at all prepared for that, or at least she's forgotten her preparations for that. So in reality, she's kind of set him up without knowing it. And you do wonder if she should have known that this could happen. I don't know. It, it, the idea of having him call every hour, like it, it seems like she wanted a contact completely outside the zone of the mirror that sort of makes good sense but it's it's her fiance so if she doesn't pick up the phone he's gonna show up there so tim goes down to see dad and the door opens up and we get one of these shots of marisol that is really creepy and that's when i talk about the, how effective the supernatural elements of this are like that's what i'm talking about there's not a stinger. It's not really a jump scare. He holds on the visual of it enough that it's, oh, God, it's it's just, it's terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying in the way that the best scenes in The Ring are or The Grudge. Like, it's, you can tell that, that Flanagan really understands supernatural horror and how to get a real scare out of it. It's we're watching it now. And I have my, I just got chills. Like it's, it's terrifying. For God's sake, hit play. I want to point out that, uh, it looks like there's some mouth trauma here in the ghost's, uh, mouth. You know, I, I thought I saw teeth, but, but yeah, I think, I think there is the implication of, you know, we're supposed to connect that to her, her taking her teeth out. There's also in that scene just to just to really get granular with it. He opens the door. She's clearly behind Dad at the desk, and then she very quickly appears behind the door. Because it's all one take, it feels like the space has been manipulated somehow. Right. It, it really adds to the scare. Like she, she crosses ground, she shouldn't be able to cross that quickly. Exactly, yeah. and but. Those are the those are the things that make that scene extra, just just terrifying as opposed to just the image of her that mm-hmm. that our brains are sort of forced to fill in these things that seem impossible. Yeah, it yeah. adds to the uncanniness of it. Exactly. So here's what I'm talking about: the camera of her phone shows Kaylee that there is no broken flower pot on the floor. But the audience may already know that what you see in the screen can be manipulated, too. And I think that it's a fatal flaw in Kaylee's interpretation of the Lasser Glass's power that she thinks she can trust anything you see through a camera lens. Now, wait, is this the broken flower pot? 
Because why did she? What what triggered her to pull out her camera and see if it was real? I thought that this was this was something else from one of the flashbacks. Well, she's seeing the the broken plate, I think, from the from the mom's room. Look, there's a lot of pottery to... on the ground here. <laughs> 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 right. So, regardless of how the origins of the stuff on the floor, she's seeing that it doesn't exist according to her iPhone. And then suddenly there's dead mom and instinctively she stabs dead mom in the neck with the piece of crockery in her hand. And no, no, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here because I have a, I have a theory. So we had the whole thing where she broke the flower pot then she comes in and she sees what looks like, as Rich said, something from the, from the past with the, the plate or whatever, but mixed in with that, is the actual broken flower pot stuff. You know what I mean? So it could be that she's seeing some things that aren't real, but what she picked up in her hand wasn't part of that. It was part of the flower pot that she broke earlier. Cause that flower pot they're really specific about, but I don't think that's what she's looking at with the, with the camera. So I wonder if that's it, that she picked up a shard from the thing that was real while she yeah. was looking through her camera at things that aren't real. I think they they pretty directly tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's I mean sort of irrelevant exactly how it happens. They're just trying to create confusion and plausible ambiguity, you know, both in her mind and in reality as to what's there and 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 thus it makes it pretty believable that she would be tricked in this way. That's really all. Hardly yeah. Even matters. This this yeah. is one of the dumb repeats of the movie. Oh, yes and no. I mean, I just picked it apart from Inception in that, like, really the scenario of him just showing up here is on her, which I think she should have anticipated. But I do think this is the cool thing about this is just the cruelty, again, of the setup with the light bulb is that it's it's trained her to, to think that this kind of thing isn't real. And this time she's been manipulated to do something terrible for real. And the, and the dagger in the heart is that then the phone rings and it says that it's her fiance calling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing about that is this could be a time warpy thing as we've been sort of positing sometimes, or it's more cruelty and ventriloquist acts and game playing uh, from the mirror, which I, I'll lean towards that interpretation. No, I think so too, but it is, but it is especially cruel that even in this moment, they're not allowing her or the audience to really yet understand. Mm-hmm. Did she just murder her fiance or is it just a trick? Yeah. It's still playing games with her, with the ambiguity of the situation. She has enough reason for hope that this isn't real. Yeah, that's all flower pot there. There it is. It's the flower yeah. pot. The plate wasn't real, but the flower pot was. Right, right. And so now she's still attempting to use her camera to determine what's real. And, of course, her fiancé is visible in the camera. And she realizes that she's just she's just murdered him. 
Right, but even that's irrelevant because we already established exactly. that you can't trust what's on the camera. Yeah, Rich is right. That's it's totally irrelevant, but it, it's still cruel to her. <laughs> it makes it makes it real for her. Yeah, it is irrelevant because her her boyfriend is a lifeless blah person, and the the world will be fine without him. But Dude, you're so hard on this well, poor guy. <laughs> only sleeping with him to get closer to the mirror at the at the uh, auction house. <laughs> He's actually, and, and I swear to God, stick with me on this. When he pops up as a ghost, he's the least effective ghost in the whole fucking movie. <laughs> I, I, I agree 100%. He is the most memorable ghost because he is the worst. He's not only yeah. failing at life, he's failing at death. He's failing at death. Even the mirror can't make him an effective person. <laughs> this poor actor. I'm sorry. I don't think you're that bad, for the record, if you're listening. So we get a big debate as they think they're leaving, and one does wonder why don't they just walk away from the house at this point. And but you know they don't really know what's going on, and 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 like if he got if he called for help and the call went through, that's only because the mirror wanted the police to show up at the appointed time. And Tim's got a, a theory that they can just stand outside and watch the mirror die. And, you know, she goes for it in the moment, like, yeah, that'd be great when, you know, maybe we are standing outside and then this wonderful beat where they, they look back at the house and all the lights come on, the power is restored so that they can see themselves in the, the room with the mirror. He pulls the curtains and she's standing right in front of the, the glass again, about to get whacked when the yacht anchor releases and and for a good measure uh tim stands behind her so they'll both get impaled and outside the versions of themselves are you know realizing they can't trust anything they think that the the phone call goes through to 911 out here and you know in a pretty lovely um dovetailing to the previous 10 years ago uh, 911 says you're going to have to have your father call. <laughs> the doctor will be there tomorrow. Well, I love that bit. Even the tone, the the audio quality that they give to it, it's it's mocking them. Yeah, it even calls him Timbo, which I find pretty funny. <laughs> it's well, and it's a testament to the manipulation that that we've endured as an audience, right? That we buy this. They're outside the house. We know that they, they should be safe. That goes back to that thing I was talking about with the isolation, right? They're free. At any time, they can just open the door and walk out. And when they open the door and walk out, this is what it comes up with to bring them back in. And we as the audience buy it because, shit, maybe they are actually standing in front of the mirror. And they could be. I mean, they could only be thinking that they're outside the house because we already saw that with Tim on the phone. And he realizes that you know, when she's talking to him that he never left the house. So yeah, all of that exactly. is set up. But back in the past, dad is loading the gun with ill intent. And Tim reports this to Kaylee, little Tim, little Kaylee. And she's got a golf club and they decide they're going to have to smash the mirror because yeah, they know that the mirror is behind this, and they're in agreement on that point back then, before and Tim went away. Dad, they've got Dad's golf clubs, mm-hmm. and 
I should point out too, just going, going from this point forward, guys, you're just going to have to figure out if we're talking about old Tim or young Tim. Okay. Like mm-hmm. with, it's going to switch back and forth so fast that it's going to be, it's going to be really hard for us to talk about it in a way that. It just turns into the ending of the shining also here, you know, where you're just seeing all kinds of phenomena going on, including Marisol coming and, you know, demon ghoul, uh, Marisol threatening but, the kids. But speaking with Alan's voice, which I didn't think worked, that's not, mm. that's of all the supernatural scares. That's the, the, the least effective. I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Yep. I don't see a good reason for that. Doesn't make sense. Not, not terribly effective viscerally. No, it's just weird. That's mm-hmm. all. It's, you know, they're just trying to keep, keep it strange. Just, yeah. Keep throwing weirdness at you. Yeah. Holy shit. Now we're getting Katie Sackoff eating the, the bowl. Yeah. You know what my note was on this? Katie eating the plate. Ugh! All caps. U-G-H-H-H-H. <laughs> and then dad comes in to unchain his dog. Meaning his wife. <laughs> Which, and I, I know I brought this up last time, but I, I do just want to reiterate that, that it's not a complicated lock. It's not like he needs a key to get her off of there. <laughs> but they have this moment of connection where they're looking at each other. She's this bestial thing. He's whatever he is. And they seem to have kind of an understanding. And to me, this beat is Grady is letting Jack out of the pantry. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Well, he puts the gun under her chin, too. I can kill you, or you can go do what you know you need to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like, he's the... She's the lesser of the two evils, all of a sudden. We've gotten to that point, the way this plays out. Well, but it feels like he's he's unleashing this wild dog on his children, right? Yeah, he can't. He's not. He's not ready to do it himself. But I'll let her do it. And then the outcome of that, not to get ahead of ourselves, is that she won't do it, and so he kills her. Yeah. And the kids are still debating their adult versions. You know, where are we really? Is the anchor going to go off? You know, and mom is there outside the door, and it's like. But then we're blurring like. Is mom outside their door or their young versions? It just, yeah. It, this, I think Rich really didn't like this the first time we talked about this movie. How do you feel now? No, what are you talking about? I, I love. I thought. I, I think that this scene was my highlight for this movie. Really? I, I thought you didn't like the intercutting of the timelines for some reason. I don't know where I'm getting that, huh? No, no. I, 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 I actually, I actually think from the the. The bath, this bathroom scene moving forward. I love the fact that it's just like you're witnessing these like parallel movements between the the child versions and the adult versions. And mm-hmm. the the other thing I'll say is that I'm really struck, uh, especially the past couple of viewings, at um, the performances in this scene. Like I think that especially like Annalise Basso is like being yeah. like a, a top for a kid. Um, like she is like an excellent mix of like kind of confident and vulnerable and afraid and, and powerful. Like it's a, it's an emotional moment between the two of them. Yeah. Like where I think 
there's this moment where she says like, I love you. And then race for the stairs, you know, go for the stairs. It's a really nice moment um, that we're, we're about to see. Uh, I do want to point out that it's great to have a real physical threat here at this part of the film. In addition to the more subtle unearthly threat that the mirror presents, having the crazy parents just makes everything more visceral and real. The mirror doesn't even need them to kill these two Tim and Kaylee when it gets a second chance at it, or at least to leave them where it wants to leave them more accurately because it's very Machiavellian, more Machiavellian even than Simon in session nine or the Overlook hotel. I think if you really connect all the dots, these kids don't have a chance, but I think filmically it's really good to have the mother, you know, pounding at the door. Um, It's just, yeah, it makes it, it it grabs you more to have that element here, Um, which I guess the shining obviously had too with Jack, but, the threat is very physical. It's right. not just... Right. Yeah, this almost feels like an action movie. She's got the golf club to fend off their mother, but Dad is still there with the gun. Kaylee finds a bedroom, opens a window, and she's going to get away here, which is kind of painful. I love how fearlessly she jumps out of the window. Like it's a long jump and she doesn't even think about it. She's just, she's like, I have to get out. I think she's a badass character. There's no doubt. Like you have to give her great respect as a character, even if, you know, she doesn't realize that she's overmatched. She gives it a hell of a go. Some of the, I won't call it fearlessness because she's clearly afraid, but the, the bravery there's the guy with the mustache, by the way. Right. I think. See, I, I was, one of my notes was, who the fuck is the guy with the mustache? But Vic, you answered that question at the beginning of the movie, so I thank you. But the the bravery that she exhibits is is a, the characteristic that carries through into the adult version of her. That she's not going to be afraid of the mirror. She's going to, she's going to do what she has to do. And that's, that's sort of a through line for her character. Yeah, you know, she goes back for Timbo. You know, she's going to re-enter the ghost house, even though she was out free and clear. Um, and yeah, ghost dad, smirking, mirror-eyed ghost dad confronts Tim. Outside, the gun goes off. Timbo? Kaylee says. I'm not sure how I feel about Timbo, guys. I'm going to just say this, the, the use of Timbo. But, okay. That was a, that was probably a poor usage of it. But <laughs> even the ghost in the window, after the gunshot, she's going to go back in. She can't leave her brother behind. Yeah. Absolutely. But the, so the fact that we cut from this to adult Kaylee coming in suggests that adult Kaylee jumped out the window of the bathroom, right? Maybe. I mean, she was definitely yeah. outside. No, no, no. I think that's exactly what's going on. I think that, that, that they're, like I said, they're, they're physical movements, like chart tracking now. Like they're on, like they're on parallel paths. Even though we never see adult Kaylee jump out a window. Correct. Yeah. I think at this point they're just reliving the, the childhood trauma. 
Yeah. And I, all right. Well, she goes back for Timbo then, and she's confronted with Michael, the dead fiance, who is a resident now. He's got the mirror eyes, and uh, I, I don't think he's that bad. Yeah, he's a little creepy. Watch his, watch his expression here after, as she she sort of stares at him. Ugh, he's just so <laughs> smug. God. <laughs> Michael, the world is better off that you got eaten by a fucking mirror. <laughs> you know, he was pretty cool about her printing crime scene photos at work. I'll have you know. That's just because she was a hellcat in the sack. Did you see how kind he was when she woke him out of a dead sleep with her 15th nightmare of the month? Again, Hellcat in the sack. That's all <laughs> Michael's in it for. He's probably having an affair anyway. <laughs> with Marisol. Young Kaylee is, is wrestling with her mother, who is, who is really valiantly going to strangle her, uh, the life out of her. And Katie Sackhoff's expression when it happens is is just devastating. I gotta say, I I buy Katie Sackhoff's like physical strength. Like she does not seem like a, a waif. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she has a great physicality to her. Uh, but you know, her humanity returns. This is this is the Mike Flanagan that we know and love, and I, I say that somewhat sarcastically. In that, uh, at the hour of truth, um, she the moment of truth at the midnight hour. Mom cannot kill her her daughter, and she regains her humanity, releases Kaylee's neck, looks down on her, and says, "Kaylee," and she's back and she's reconnecting, and then she's shot in the heart by Dad. I, I appreciate that in the in the edit as she's strangling Kaylee, like you can see that Kaylee's face is like beat red, mm-hmm. which means at some point someone really strangled Kaylee, the actress, yeah, or, or the actress, or I guess at least maybe she was doing some method acting and like uh, holding her breath or something like that. But I appreciate they went that extra mile to get that effect. The one thing I'll say to justify this beat that I just criticized in a sense is that maybe that's just cruelty as well, that the mirror kind of allows her to do that so that she has to deal with the horror of what she was trying to do to her own daughter. And then the mirror is done with her for now, at least in, in her mortal life, because it, it brings her back to see that she's strangling her own daughter and then, you know, sends her off to it, her immortal reward slash punishment um, because it doesn't really need her to kill Kaylee there. That I can maybe get behind other than this sort of the idea, the saccharine sweetness that the soul will, you know, will not be a when push comes to shove, it won't be a puppet, which is exactly what we see with dad in a, in a few seconds here. Now, John, I'm I'm just going to point out that I made I, I said almost exactly what you just said, and you argued vigorously against me about why that was actually still a brutal scene and not saccharine uh, in the in the last podcast. The last podcast, like two weeks ago, we talked about the ending of this movie in, no, de- no, no, in detail. That, no, I'm sorry, in the in the the last podcast in which we spoke about this. Okay, you mean like last round? I, Yes, the highlights, lowlights ending. Oh. When we got to the ending of this, 
I brought that up about feeling like there was a bit of the Flanagan saccharineness to both uh, uh, mom and dad having these moments of revelation where they couldn't kill their kids. And, and you, you pushed back very hard, John. Well, I, I don't know exactly. Obviously, I'll be reviewing the tape, but I think I did just explain it, didn't I? I mean, I, I think I, I said that it, it, in a way it's more cruel at the last second to give them back their 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 life in order to have them reflect on where they're at and then kill them if that's what the mirror is doing. Maybe that's what I said then. I don't know. I don't recall. I drink a lot, Vic. Yeah. <laughs> But in any event, the ghosts flank dad as he executes mom with extreme prejudice, stone cold. And around this time, I was realizing, like, it's been a long time since they reset that yacht anchor timer. And then I was thinking, is that the point of all this, to distract them with a stroll down memory lane? It's also worth pointing out the ghosts are out in force now. Yeah, they absolutely are. Yeah, this is a home full of ghosts. All the other victims become part of the family, which is one of the worst things that we realize happens to characters that we care about at the end of the movie. But in the past, Kaylee and Timbo grab the golf clubs and they're trying to smash that damn mirror. But of course, they think they're hitting it, but they're hitting the wall around the mirror. Dad shows up. I thought I told you not to play around in here. And she says, this isn't you. And he says, it is me, which I think is kind of a great line. I've met my demons and they are many. There's a weird psychological resonance to this. It's kind of the idea that this kind of darkness resides within all of us. We talk about how much Kaylee is the active one through most of this movie. And it is only here in the climactic scene that Tim really takes action and really sort of steps up and and takes actions that are going to define the rest of his life, basically. Mm-hmm. That he's been, he's been a, a very passive character in the past, uh, you know, in his in his younger self. But here as a kid, he suddenly takes up first. He, he hits his father with the golf club to save Kaylee. And then he takes up the gun. So much strangling in this movie. We already noted it, but there was more strangling while you were talking there. Yeah, it should just be assumed that while we're talking, someone's being strangled. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good rule of thumb for this film. Take a drink when somebody's strangling a kid. Uh, so yeah, what I was saying before, it's clear that dad commits suicide here, his ray of sunshine, his remaining goodness in his soul comes back to the forefront and he, he, you know, checks out rather than continue to, to do horrible things. Is that what happens there, though? Or is it that the, the mirror's sort of like parting jab is to saddle Tim with the the guilt of being behind his father's death? You know, normally, again, I think that I would be f- quick to poke holes in that. But this movie seems at every turn to be 
doing a good job of setting up the cruel interpretation of what the mirror is doing and how it all does in fact lead us to the worst possible, most torturous outcome for both of these characters. So I can't argue with that. I, that's part of why I like this movie so much is that you really can point to the end of it and say, could that be what the mirror wanted all along as like the ideal end to this game, this torturous game. And I would say, absolutely. It's actually much crueler the way this plays out than having any of these characters die in any way along the way. I'd also, we're, we're frozen on the menagerie of ghosts descending on Tim and Kaylee. And I sort of love that, that as they open their mouths, what we get is the, the buzzer buzzing out of their mouths. That works in terms of this idea of alien sounds coming from mm-hmm. places that you don't expect it much better than Alan's voice uh, when Marisol was using it earlier. But front and center in this menagerie is the woman whose fucking mouth got burned off by the cable. Yeah, they're all like sort of howling at them. And this isn't real. The buzzing fades. Tim wakes up sitting in front of the mirror, or so he thinks, alone in the room. This is such a fateful moment. He comes out of it alone. Total overlap of the two story threads, where now, in the past, apparently, young Kaylee is standing in front of the mirror with her golf club, and... Spattered with her father's blood. Yep. And... She's looking around, but this is almost like she seems dislocated. Like she doesn't know what she's doing here. And she sees her mom happy, healthy, and whole in the mirror. And my first thought would be, oh, is this just Flanagan losing his edge here? Once again, not in this movie, motherfuckers. Ghost mom lures her into a hug. And they're up, they're in overlapping timelines where they're not, they seem not to be in the same space, even though they're in the same room. And we're going to see how these fateful, what, what young Kaylee is doing, going to hug her ghost mom in the mirror versus what older Tim is doing in the same room. We're going to see the fateful intersection of these two timelines. He goes and he's like, fuck you. And he pulls the, turns the switch, activate the kill switch. And he, then he sees that Kaylee was standing in front of the mirror because he didn't even know she was actually there. I do want to shout out to the caption writer who wrote wet thudding with the sound of the, the yacht yes. creating Kaylee. <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> so he kills his sister. Brendan Thwaites' uh, uh, performance is really good as he's watching his sister die. And then we, and it's intercut with with Kaylee making Tim promise that they're going to come back and destroy the mirror, which is exactly what he did. He came back and he tried to destroy the mirror. Because of that promise, it sealed his sister's fate. It's devastating. Yeah, It's, the most, it's such a nihilistic, devastating ending to a film. Absolutely. I fucking love it. Yeah, the weights never hit the mirror. The lesser glass makes out fine, as I believe it knew it would. And it even orchestrated the arrival of the police both times. 
it let the call go through when it wanted the call to go through. When this part of the game was over. And we're seeing the police at the crime scene in the past. Talking to the kids. And, and then, then we see the adult Tim in handcuffs. Yeah, it really is sad to see Kaylee lose because she was a badass. And I do kind of wish I knew how much the mirror was damaged, if at all, by this. <sighs> she wanted a smoking gun, and she got one. It's just too bad it's pointed at Timbo. This time she's not there to come out running saying, It was the mirror! It's his turn to say that. But now he's just a, a nutcase in the eyes of the world, so he's well and truly screwed. We don't need to see any court scenes. We know what's up. We know what's in his future. Yeah, it's just brutal, the sle- emotional sledgehammer of this. As he's you know protesting, just as she was, it was the mirror, it was the mirror. Nobody will ever believe it. And they really make a big deal out of this promise and don't forget and everything. It's a very, like, to me, like, this is a very literally, like, chilling ending. Like, I get chills every time I watch it. It really, like, brings it all together. Yeah, especially seeing Kaylee with the mirrors in her eyes. Like, just being incorporated into this fucking funhouse. Well, young, young Tim, as he's being driven away, sees the ghosts of his parents in the windows, and old Tim sees his parents with Kaylee. Right. Right. It's, yeah, it's devastating. Yeah, look at this, where I'm pausing it here. I, I find this, like, very, like, poetic and tragic. I'm not quite sure, because of the dislocation of timelines, see this car pulling away, and there's young Kaylee here on the right of the frame, watching it and yeah you could say oh well this is just her watching her young brother you know being driven away by the police the first time but i just get this weird sense because she looks so defeated as she bows her head in sadness that in a way even though we already saw her in the in in the window i just think artistically to end on this this is almost like a ghost version of young kaylee watching adult Tim go. At least I like to think of it that way. I had the same thought in that did Tim as the as the car was was pulling away, did young Tim see Kaylee, see old Kaylee, see older Kaylee in the window? That's or a not? Possibility, yeah. I, a, I don't the way it's filmed, I don't think that he did. I feel like yeah. you see young Kaylee and then you see mom and dad and then you see old Tim and then you see Kaylee in the window with them. So um, I don't, I don't think that's the case, but thinking back on it, I wondered if that was something. And it's again, a testament to the way the movie's put together. that That's a possibility. I just think the very, how you, the final shot of a movie means something. It's not something, a decision you take lightly. And I just think ending with young Kaylee kind of just bowing her head is powerful, you know, and it, it feels like separated from the individual circumstances of what happened when she was a kid. And it's more of a larger thing. Yeah. It's just, I understand why Flanagan didn't, you know, felt the need to, to not be this pitch dark in other films. Cause why repeat yourself? 
but uh, the fact that this movie is as dark as terrified is part of why I think it it's the best of his films. Uh, even in the shining, which is, you know, a dark film, the good guys win except for Scatman Crothers. Of course, I think this is a, a really sad, like legitimately tragic movie. And uh, that works for me. So I'm a big fan. Well, I think that's the, the thing that Flanagan, as we've talked about in the past, Flanagan wants to get not just the fear reaction out of you, but the emotional reaction out of you. And what I think that he gets here is that that emotional reaction doesn't have to be, you know, there is beauty and light in the world in spite of the darkness. It doesn't have to be that emotion that you can be tragic and still get that emotional reaction and earn it and also be scary as shit. And that's really what he nails here. The, the, those other movies, you know, the haunting of Hill house and, um, we origin of evil. They just reach for a different emotional impact that doesn't mesh with the story that he's telling here. He gets the emotional impact and it perfectly meshes with the horror of the tale that, that he spun. Yeah. My feeling with the end of Hill house was that it felt like a different show. It didn't feel contiguous with what had come before it. It felt tacked on. Um, and it just, yeah, it didn't mesh well. And I, you know, I've, my thoughts on Ouija are, are, are well, um, known, but this, I think they just absolutely nailed it. And, and yeah, the larger point is that even sappy romantic people sometimes like sad stories and tragic stories. So there's no reason to shy away from it. You don't have to remind people, oh, but there's still love will live on and your, your spirits will live on and everything will work out. And, and, you know, like you don't have to do that even for the, the normies, you know, and he just does it in kind of a ham handed way. Sometimes uh, I'm kind of just sort of randomly. I feel like the fact that, um, Dr. Sleep isn't in our tournament is something that, you know, because we have such a Flanagan presence. Um, I know we considered it. I only saw it once. I think you saw it once Vic. Just it's kind of interesting. I'm I'm sort of looking forward with so much Flanagan in my head to revisiting that movie because uh, you know Flanagan doing the sequel to The Shining. It seems like it's certainly an elephant in our room, but I I feel like it it had more of the the downsides of his work than the the genius of this film. Yeah, I'll, I I would need to revisit it again, but uh, yeah, there's there's certainly that that case certainly leaps to mind. But, so. I know Rich was saying last time he talks to people that don't like this movie or thought it was predictable. I don't know what to tell him. I, I think this is a, a certainly a, a, a worst, a minor classic. And at best, it, it's kind of a damn near perfect movie. And I'm not totally sold on that, but I, I, I know that I've come to really, really admire it and dig it and... Uh, yeah, it, it's the classic movie that gets better the more we've talked about it, the more we've looked at it. I also just want to want to point out as as we as we bring this uh, incredibly long podcast to a close. One of my favorite things you guys won't be able to see this uh, when you're listening, but we we've, we've been watching this simultaneously on a uh, 
on a, a group watch. Uh, and we all get to log in with our own names. And so John has logged in uh, with the name Grotesque Cow. Uh, as we're watching this, just streaming along the side of the of the page is Grotesque Cow Pause Video, Grotesque Cow Resume Video, Grotesque Cow Pause Video, Grotesque Cow Resume Video. Like, like all work and no play makes Jack a dull play. It's really, it really added a an extra element of horror to rewatching this. <laughs> I just looked at that. I see what you're talking about now. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yeah. The, the grotesque cow has been, um, trapped in a hell of its own making, which is kind of the theme of, of the film in, in a way. So that, that is very appropriate. Um, and that has been a running joke of our show uh, the the last season. So, all right, I know we're all eager to get out of here and go to bed. So, final thoughts uh, around the horn. Um, I'm I'm good, but uh, do you guys have anything you want to um, tie a bow on this thing with? I can say I I feel like we covered it. I don't know, Rich. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything? No, except to say, like it, it may be the, the the least clean of the movies, and I and I I think that that is both for better or, or worse for this film. Like if if I have to think of a, a clunky metaphor for it, it's that that this thing reminds me of like a, a big bowl of like a, a pasta with marinara sauce. Like it's it's big, it's messy. There's a there's a lot of threads. Um, you know, like parts of it are going to like, like, like stick together. Like it's, it's just kind of a, a beautiful mess, but it really all works in the end. Um, and it really is just like the perfect, like balance, um, for, for what it is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like we've really parsed it. We've really, We've really taken it apart quite a bit. I think that the the shocking thing is that how much of these little threads, when you pull them apart, actually seem to like line up and, and have a fair amount of logic to them, which I think is something that's not super apparent the first time you watch this movie. So I know that part of like our the, the conversations around this movie have been the, the advocacy to to continue watching it, um, even if you didn't really like it so much on your on your first viewing. And I think that that has continued to to hold up, which has not been the case for all these movies. So um, it's interesting how they all serve sort of different roles um, in terms of how to, how to best like enjoy and and consume them. And so, yeah, this has been a really interesting one to unpack. Very unique. I have one final, one final thing. Uh, The Robert Altman film is called images, not mirrors. My bad. Uh, I'm glad you corrected the, the official record there, Vic. uh, So that's, reams of hate mail will not be directed in your uh towards you over the weeks and months to come but uh yeah that's our show and um we will call it there it's been a hell of a ride and i think this movie probably got more time than any movie we've ever done on the show if you really add it all up and i think that it it merited that so uh adios for now and we will we will be back soon